You can still change your mind. Nah. They already shaved my back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so thankful for you, John. This was meant to be. See you on the other side, son. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps with a special emphasis on the hatch this week hello everybody i'm josh wiggler i am joined here by mike bloom and mike before we even get started my question to you is how many people last week were banging on their phones frantically crying and screaming i've done everything you wanted me to do so why did you do this to me during the 12 minute time that we <laughs> spent talking about dj drinks on me what's your yeah. what's your bet over under how many people are still here with us on the podcast gotta be 23 right i want to be as adventurous <laughs> to say 42 i could imagine much like john Locke will lose the use of his legs throughout uh, most of this episode people lost the use of their fingers just by pure paralysis from the lack of comedy that came from just you and I bantering about a dumb, 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 dumb rap song that DJ was used Dom. in the course of numbers by DJ by Dom. DJ Dom, D-O-M. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, so if you've been loyal listeners of Down the Hatch, we'll know this already. But if you're somehow a first time listener of Lost Down the Hatch and you're joining us here for Deus Ex Machina because it's a fabulous episode of Lost and you wanted to listen to some people talk about it on a podcast, then maybe that's why you're here. And welcome, if so. Uh, but the loyal listeners will know that Mike Bloom and I are currently in the process of we are binge recording these final episodes of season one. So every subsequent day we are getting together and talking about these episodes of Lost where normally we are recording one podcast a week, and so we're really able to see and take the temperature of uh, what the listeners are thinking about the work that we are doing here. Uh, Mike, we're deep in the woods right now, like off on our own fevered dream vision quest, uh, and we've got no idea how any of that landed with, <laughs> with yeah. DJ Drinks on Me. I mean, and, uh, and, and if you don't like- know what DJ Drinks on Me is, maybe go back and listen to our episode recapping numbers, and you will find out for yourself. If I, I have my wits about me, much like the Beechcraft, it will have just crashed and maybe burned uh, in response, but hopefully not. Who legendary. Knows? Either way, either a, a legendary win or a legendary fail. But either way, we're talking about a legendary episode of Lost today, Mike. We are talking Deus Ex Machina, the second ever John Locke flashback episode of Lost. Uh, is it quite as powerful as Walkabout? I think that's something that we'll discuss. It certainly features an ending that rivals Walkabout, which is mm. pretty wild to talk about. Uh, so it's this is going to be a really, really great episode to to sink our teeth into. I'm out on the record saying Johnny Locke is my man. You know that is that is my favorite character on on Lost, uh, or at least he he always has like had that spot. Um, 
in in subsequent watch throughs of Lost, other characters have become like my favorite of the watch. Uh, but I think that 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 elite position still has to be held by John Locke for me because he just represents everything that's so great about this show in my mind. And so I can't wait to talk about this one. Deus Ex Machina is a crazy episode. Yeah, I mean, this is a game changer of an episode in so many ways. You know, it's been a hot second since I think we really checked in with Locke, even though he had the big hatch discovery with Boone and Hearts and Minds really had him doing some very uh, interesting tactics to get Boone on his side and on his side only. It really feels like we haven't concentrated on him specifically, especially with all the stuff going on with Ethan and even last episode, which was a big Hurley centerpiece, you know, Locke was working on a cradle. He wasn't even in the hatch, which he's is been, crazy. He's been a mystery to us, right? Like, I mean, he's he's kind of a he's a general during the Ethan thing, and he has a, a voice in that operation, but he's not the lead of, of that uh storyline by any stretch of the imagination. Um we we see him uh, you know, defend Jin basically and call out the others back in ooh in translation, uh, and talk to Walt, and we see him create the cradle with Claire in last week's episode, but you're right that he's been fairly sparsely used. We haven't really checked in on the progress of the hatch. So that is something pretty major that we're going to check in on this week. And the progress is not great. The report is the report is bleak. Uh, Listen, it, what did Michelangelo say, Josh? These things take time. You have to sit there and think or else you're not going to get a Sistine Chapel. And that's why this episode is so fantastic, because I think it, it really highlights an aspect of John Locke that we haven't seen too much of since walkabout and when we saw it in walkabout we were seeing it in his past this idea of frustration and impatience and um feeling like he is better than the world is giving him credit for that he is meant for things that are bigger than the world is allowing him to pursue and here he's been on the island this whole way through so far and he's been an important person he's been a power player he's been involved in secrets he's got secrets of his own and everything seems to be just like kind of breaking on a line that has been like easy for him to follow in the sense of this is the way to go I don't need the compass because I know which direction is north and I'm walking in that way. Though he does get the compass in this episode, which is interesting. And here for the first time, we are getting a, a version of John Locke on the island where all of that is slipping away and it slips away profoundly. Uh, you know, when when John Locke fails, he fails pretty hard and he fails really hard here. Yeah, well, that happens when you throw yourself into anything, be it a project or in this case a set of beliefs and i totally agree that we see a new side of john locke and we see a new scenario for john locke in both the past and the present which is what happens when john locke loses faith and it's really interesting to compare the past and the present and it's done quite literally in this ending sequence where when he loses faith when something betrays him or someone betrays him he is furious he is desperate he loses that steely resolve and essentially melts and it's a really new side to john locke because like you said i mean he was presenting himself as mr big bag hunter man i know everything about survivalism from the get-go to the point where that walkabout reveal was such a big major twist because it completely subverted everything we expected about locke beforehand and now we get to see another side of that too you know he has been so adamant and confident that he was working towards a greater purpose both you know as a young man and here on the island 
But what happens when that greater purpose becomes more obscured? Right. And how does he respond to that? Right. Well, we're going to see. We're going to see how he responds to it in this episode. Uh, of course, uh, if you are not subscribed to Down the Hatch already, we strongly recommend that you rectify that. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash down the hatch for our Apple feed. But you can find us on your podcast app of choice. You can also send us feedback. We have a feedback section every week on Down the Hatch. It's called The Others. Uh, you can send that in down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Com. Currently, we are we are now accepting feedback for a, a season one grand finale feedback special, uh, which will be coming at the end of January. So anything you write in from this point forward is eligible for that podcast. With all of that said, Mike Bloom, we go forth into the jungle to talk about Deus Ex Machina, directed by Robert Mandel, written by Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, the wow. first co byline from the from the two chief minds of Lost. Uh, originally aired March thirtieth, two thousand and five, and it centers on Johnny Locke. Uh, I think that this is this is also something that is worth keeping in mind as we are about to trek through the the uh, the expanse of Deus Ex Machina. This is oh, the no, first... The Expanse is another show. That Josh. is another show. Great show. Uh, this is this is the first Damon and Carlton joint. You know, like I think Carlton's influence has been felt in the last couple of weeks. And hell, he, he literally provided a voice yes, last episode. Indeed, and you know, I think his his first crack at Lost was was pretty good. Um, but man, this is his second byline, and he delivers Deus Ex Machina with with Damon. You can really see where so much of the magic of the rest of Lost begins here uh, with these two minds coming together. Yeah, I really wonder, and I don't know, actually, uh, looking at the others, if we have any behind-the-scenes stories about this from either uh, these guys or our Harvey Agro Mark's Watch Watch of it all. But I'd be very interested as to how these two decided, okay, we're going to write this specific episode together. You know, like, obviously, I think Locke was a was a big part of season one, which I can understand why people were drawn to write about this episode in general. But I wonder, especially from the sort of head stations they were both at at this point to say, you know what, we're going to come down from our throne a bit. We're going to, you know, pen this script together. This feels like an important story that needs to be told. And we're interested in telling it. All right, let's. Uh, we're we're at a point where we don't have a we don't need to read the series Bible entry for John Locke anymore. So here we are in his second episode. We've got a, a fictional created just for Down the Hatch series Bible entry about one of the other very important characters introduced into the Lost Lexicon this week. Anthony Cooper, played by Kevin Ty. Uh, this is uh, this is Ben uh, the Ben behind the curtains down the hatch series Bible entry for Anthony Cooper, which means it's going to be at least a little bit wrong. Uh, ben writes, "A wealthy and reclusive man, Anthony Cooper was once a con man with a simple grift: use women to get their rich husbands." Cooper has been out of the game for years, but his need for a kidney drew him back in for one last con. With the need to find a compatible donor, Cooper hired an investigator to track down his many illegitimate children and finally settled on one son as the perfect mark. John Locke. Why was that not capitalized? Yeah, John Locke! Uh, that's that's uh, that's us uh, adjusting the, the entry here. Um, I think most of this is pretty on. Uh, I think- yeah, I think the the one last con is probably the 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 least true part of it, considering that uh, John Locke is going to get paralyzed because he catches Anthony Cooper mid con 
post this kidney incident. And I think it's also less that he has like the one move where he's just finding women who can like get him to have access to their rich husbands. I don't know much about uh you know the the wealth of the of the James Ford household when he was a child, but given everything else that's going on in his life, I I don't necessarily expect that Sawyer came from like a lot of money. Uh I think that back in the day Anthony Cooper's probably just grifting where he can grift, right? Like I think he's just picking up what he can get. But we're going to see that Anthony Cooper lives large, right? Like, you know, he's got the security guy. He's got the big mansion. Like, he's he's doing it up. Uh, so somewhere along the way, at the very least, he uh, his ambitions must have turned towards very wealthy people who he was able to, to overturn. It's been speculated, Josh, because of his con man status, if his name is really even Anthony Cooper. Yes. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I would not be surprised at all if it's not. Um, I think that there there may be some uh, there may be some reasons to believe that it is actually Anthony Cooper. It depends on like how canonical you view the sideways universe where we know that he's going to be like in a nursing home. Right. And like Locke is going to have something of a relationship with him there. And in the nursing home, they're calling him Anthony Cooper. So is that just because that's how Locke knows him? Or is that because like other people in the Flash Sideways who are not part of the church crew, do they have agency, right? Like, do they actually know things? So is that actually Anthony Cooper? Is that his name? But I think it's it's fun at the very least to to debate the idea that, man, like, this guy may be such a phony that the name that we think is his baseline name isn't even his baseline name. Yeah, I personally think that his name is actually Anthony Cooper, just because I can understand with the other cons, like, you know, again, we're going to talk about seducing the the widow out of her oh money. Oh my god, wait a minute. <laughs> what if he's DJ Dom? Oh my god. Everybody with me. Drinks on yeah, me. Yeah, he said he, he gives Locke a drink, and he asks, you know, uh, who you coming with? Hey you know? y'all, who you coming with? Who you leaving with? That's I, my line. Yeah, and his line is like, he has a line that he sells people. Okay, this could let's get off this. Thing. Let's get off this. <laughs> right, hop off this train right now. Hop off this beachcraft. But yeah, yeah. I, I think that in this case, I just feel like between like probably the medical records he had to go through with the whole kidney thing, the fact that he has like people, you know, he has a, an address, you know, uh, a re- residential place like signed to this name. I'd like to think his name is Anthony Cooper because that's a lot harder than like all the random other cons he's running where he can just walk up to somebody and be like, hey, this is my name. And it's not like he needs to set up any sort of uh, other government-established you know, pieces of identity to have to corroborate with that. So we're about to embark on the, the contents of the episode with the assistance of eight sounds. But before we do, I do feel like uh, we really ought to just like stop down for a moment to be like, so Anthony Cooper is the freaking worst. This yeah. guy sucks. This guy's terrible. Worst daddy, uh, daddy troll Cooper. Uh, I don't know what the opposite of daddy King Quan is. I guess uh, like daddy peasant, daddy sir. No, he's like, he's like, it's worse. He's like, he's like a he's, dragon. He's the, is he the daddy dragon? Daddy dragon. Yeah, he kind of is. Like he is, you know, all the, all the best daddies have cowboy issues. Uh, something like that. Uh, and so most of the characters on Lost, or many of them at least, have these really loaded relationships with their fathers. And probably Jack's relationship to Christian is the one that is most central to the story. It's certainly where we resolve things in the end. Mm. Um, but I, I think that like, 
nobody is more messed up by their dad than John Locke is by Anthony Cooper. Uh, and like, at least with, with Christian, you can see how he's, in his own right, something of a tragic figure. Uh, like that doesn't excuse the fact that he's a real bastard, that he he treats his family really poorly. Um, but I think that you do at least get the sense that much of that comes from you know disease, right? Like much of that comes from from sickness that he has. With Anthony Cooper, there is nothing. There is not a, a an iota of anything that you can grab onto. To make you feel like, ah, well, you know, if you just tried to see it from his perspective, you could even say that about Susan Lloyd to some degree. To you, some degree. To There's some, a morsel. But, but to some degree. You cannot with Anthony Cooper. If no. anybody has a true defense of Anthony Cooper, it better be good. Otherwise, we're not going to read it on the <laughs> on the finale feedback Yeah, don't, don't come in with like, well, Locke deserved to be conned. No, no. Yeah, no. And, that's, and that's the thing is that, you know, they don't give Anthony Cooper, and that, I think that's purposeful as well. As much as we talk about the show really doing a great job, I think providing a lot of shades of gray, even a character like Christian, we talked about it in Outlaws, his scene with Sawyer in the bar where he really almost sheds his skin and shows his true form without the white coat who is Christian Shepard, and according to him, he's weak. I feel like Anthony Cooper almost is larger than a person in this regard. He's a point- dragon! You're you're exactly right. He's like, he's smog on the gold pile. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's got a treasure, and he's high and mighty and cocky, and unfortunately, you know, Locke isn't able to take Sting and able to pierce that underside. He's trying to, but it feels like... He just looms. I don't so think much that of- Bilbo did that anyway. I don't think that's what happened to Smog. Oh right, we're talking. Oh right, the black bar- arrow. Bar- bard the Bowman. Yeah, Sawyer's yeah. like Bard the Bowman. He yeah. L- Locke figures out what the chink in the Under Armour is, and he throws Sawyer through it. Yeah, but that's but that's <laughs> the thing too is that like the reason you know I think the reason why Ben ultimately brings him to the island is not you know for Locke to have a conversation with his dad, but because what he represents, and I think that you know Cooper represents something more than he is an actual person to the point where he's almost like cartoonishly evil in his manipulations. Uh, They never give him a moment for him to actually be a human, but that's because they don't want him to be. They really want this to be a white whale for Locke. And I think the minute you give him three dimensions, that sort of weakens his character's purpose. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, All right. Let's get into the episode proper. And we begin with a flashback. And it's John Locke, and he's working at a big retail store. It's like a Walmart or something. Uh, and he's he's showing this kid how to play mousetrap. It's the shoe bucket and the tub, and you come to the thing, and you do it all. And well, but, but before we get into the, the mousetrap, we, we got to talk about the elephant in the room here, Josh. We don't, call, talk about- don't call Emily Locke an elephant. That's so mean. Uh, excuse me. No, no, no. We have to bring back Wiggler's Wig Watch temporarily okay. to talk about John Locke's right. hairpiece through these flashbacks. It should come as no surprise that the man who uh, who stands Martha Toomey uh, <laughs> also, <laughs> also stands John Locke's ridiculous flashback hair. I have no issue with the flashback hair. In fact... I love it. I love how ridiculous Lost tries to <laughs> Lost Lost tries to make us think that John Locke's like what, like thirty years old with this hair, yeah. and that's all that's gonna. <laughs> that's yeah, all that it, we get it to looks go like on. When it's Tobias, it looks like when Tobias Funke got like hair plugs in Arrested Development season three. It's amazing. Yeah. He also like he looks like shades of Fisher Stevens and Hacker. Oh, with, I like can that see it. slick with like that slick Minkowski. back look. Yeah. 
it's it's just i love it and we're going to be seeing it a lot more don't worry because i i feel like we very rarely outside of walkabout get the bald john Locke look they really want us to look at john Locke's quote-unquote earlier years when he got into very hairy situations quite literally i i just love it i think he, i think he looks great I I think it's I think it's fantastic. I like how when he gets angry, it hangs low, like it's almost in his mouth. Uh, it's just a great piece. It's just a it's just like a a great piece for Terry O'Quinn to have to work with. Uh, I think it like it just like it localizes Locke in this very specific time, uh, this age of innocence before everything goes wrong, and then he still has the hair. While, you know, after things have started to go wrong, but it's like. It's like haggard. It's like progressively like more of like uh Yeah, like he's literally like you can imagine he's like literally ripping his hair up trying think, to get to I, Anthony Cooper. I think it like it 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 adds to the sadness of him. Uh, is is the way that I read it. It's like the way that it looks on him. Uh like you kind of just like like he he kind of like feels like a like a very large boy. Um and I and I think that there are many ways in which that's actually fairly accurate of John Locke as somebody whose growth was fairly stunted. Um you know, I think that this is somebody who has really struggled to ever belong anywhere. This is somebody who's ever who's really struggled to ever find his purpose. Um you know, he he was he was bouncing around from home to home to home. He never really had stability in his life when he finally meets his parents. This episode is what happens. Uh, this is a very, very sad man. This is a guy who loves to play games. You know, he he reads a lot and fantasizes a lot. Uh, he's a he's a big dreamer, but not a big doer until he gets to the island. Um, and I I think that there's just there's there's like a quality of like uh a uh he's like a he's like a teenager in an, an adult body in a lot of mm. ways to me. Um, and I, I think that that's part of the reason why he's such a great character and why he has some of that childlike wonder when he's out on the island, uh, that like, yes, he's very wise in a lot of ways, but he's also very youthful in a lot of ways where like, this is the first chance he's ever had to actually be alive and live his life and really do everything that it is he wanted to do and say, screw you, dad. Look what I can do now. Um, so I think I think that like seeing him in the form that we see him in in the flashbacks really helps to crystallize that quality about him for me. I think that the hair, even though it's it's an easy punchline, I think really helps to to add to that aesthetic for for John Locke. Plus, I will say I think Jack's hair in Man of Science, Man of Faith is way worse. <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, very Charlie Salinger. It's very Party of Five, uh, which I think is pretty fun. Um, but we're still we're still some weeks away from that Mike Bloom. For now, we've got the mousetrap. Locke is teaching this kid how to play mousetrap. And obviously, it's like a, a a really easy way of setting up like what the arc of the episode is going to be, right? Like that that Anthony Cooper is going to spring this mouse trap for John Locke to give him his kidney. Um, but this is oh, also- so was was Locke in the, and also was is Locke in this case the diver? Considering he'll take a dive out yes, the window eventually. Yeah, well, he will be eventually for sure. Yeah, yeah. I also like the connection to last episode where. He told Claire, I love putting bits and pieces together, not only referring to the cradle, but also her memories. And here he talks about how he loves piece by piece. It all comes together, which not only reflects well on last episode, but this episode, too, where you just see, you know, again, another reason why Locke has been so contemplative and slow moving on this hatch process, because he's really been trying to think each and every piece of a plan through to the point where... I think one of the things that unfortunately damns Boone in the end here is that Locke sort of gets this vision and decides to immediately rush ahead and not take it as slow going as he has in the past. Yes, absolutely agreed. And I think that that's another thing that's great about Locke is how how detail oriented he is, how he how he loves 
process, how he, how, why he understands so many different things because he likes to assemble and disassemble and reassemble and study things piece by piece. That's another like control thing, right? Like that's another power thing. When you're so powerless in so much of your life, that's something you can control. You can be the master of many different arenas. Uh, and I think that that's something that John Locke really craves for himself. Uh, so even a game like Mousetrap is going to scratch that itch for him where your, your whole goal is to create, you know, the, the perfect Rube Goldberg machine uh, to, 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 to win the day out. Um, but the other thing that I love about this is, yeah, it, it sets up the Cooper thing. But this is, this is the story of John Locke, sadly. It's not just the story of John Locke here in Deus Ex Machina. This is the story of John Locke on Lost. This is the story of John Locke on the island. He's the mouse and the man in black is leading him to a trap. Mm, yeah, especially all that action, you know, uh, at the end of season four, going into the entirety of season five, like, yeah, it really does feel like he's leading him around the board to an ultimate destination uh, where he ends up dying. And then the man in black is able to to take him over and successfully trap him. It, it's a great, great uh, microcosm of his general arc. And the fact of the matter is also in taking his form, the man in black becomes the mouse trapped in the island. And now it sort of is like this weird sequel to Mousetrap of, right. okay, the mouse is under the cage. Now the mouse has to escape so it can go eat the cheese all around the world. All right. So Emily Locke is going to show up with her big, big coat. She's got the big coat on. She's like kind of lurking. And Locke's like, hey, what are, you, what are you lurking for? What's up? She's like, ah, it's just, you know, God, so awkward. Ah, football. The footballs? He says, oh, yeah, we got footballs. I'll wait for regulation. I'll 15 for nerf. Why are they so far apart? Yeah, just keep them pretty close together. Yeah, like, uh, people who generally are looking for Nerf footballs might want to look for their pigskin comparison. Like, unless you're trying to instill some sort of, like, exercise policy to space out as many, you know, hey, hammers in aisle one, nails in aisle 37, just to get people on the move. It it just seems like poor planning on the store's part. Maybe aisle 15 for regulation, aisle 16 for Nerf, if we want to stick with the numbers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I also think that, I mean, I, surprise, surprise, I was not really a football-throwing person, but man, no. did I, love throw, I love throwing a good Nerf football around in yeah. my day. I've never done that. I have, I have no idea how to throw a football. Well, uh, I mean, well, the Nerf footballs, like, they made the, I guess they were called, like, the Nerf Vortex, which were much smaller. They're, they're, they were the ones that had the tails yeah. to them, and they, like... They pimped those things out in the late '90s, early 2000s. There were there were ones that lit <laughs> they pimped out the Nerf footballs. Yeah, there were ones that lit up in the dark. There were ones that made wow. a whistle sound when you threw it. Like they they knew what was making money, wow. and they doubled down. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe a few years from when this took place, they say, "Okay, regulation in aisle eight, uh, Nerf in aisles 15, 16, and 17." Mike, I always knew you were a scruffy Nerf herder. This doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, yeah, listen, I'm just shooting, I just love shooting a bunch of wampas with my Nerf football. On the island, Locke is with Boone. They are at the hatch. They've excavated it more. It's really starting to jut out. Um, and they're gonna they're gonna try and do this thing. They've been they've been. This is why we haven't seen what's going on in the hatch for a while because it's been taking forever to build the great and powerful Trebuchet. But don't try to spell it. Yeah. Why do you spell trebuchet? I mean, it's T-R-E-B-U-C-H-E-T. It's a oh, little, that's right. There's, there's a little a T French to it. There's a T at the end. 
Uh, and Boone's like, why's it even called a trebuchet anyway? It's called a trebuchet because it's a trebuchet, Boone. <laughs> I mean, what did Boone expect? This is the guy who responded to, you work for a box company. Yeah, they yeah, make boxes. Yeah, like, they made boxes. As, as Boone is going to say later on, like you, uh, or he's going to say it right now, actually, like, hey, I don't know too much about you. And this is like a good example of why that's the case. Well, Boone really wants to know more. Yeah, he's like, one minute you're quoting Nietzsche, the next you're an engineer. Like, what's your story, man? Lex says, ah, I would bore you. Would it? Would it really? I think your story would fascinate people. John. I'm, I mean, so I listen. So I was, uh, I was, I was raised in several different foster homes. One one day when I was a young man, uh, this guy with uh, eyeliner on his eyes came to me and put a knife and a compass and a, a jar of sand in front of me and a map. And then he took all the stuff away and he seemed pretty disappointed in me. And then I tried to, uh, to I got into Boy Scouts and then I they, I wanted to go to science camp and people wanted me to go to sports camp uh, and I didn't want to do the sports thing and then uh i lived a long life and met my father who i had never met before and we bonded and i gave him my kidney but it turned out he was a con man and he conned me out of my kidney and then i fell in love with peggy from married with children and things worked out pretty well there for a little while but then my dad came back and because i couldn't let it go peggy left me uh and then i got a, a really upset and i went and worked on a pot farm for a while and i befriended this young guy on the side of the road and it turned out he was a secret fbi agent and i almost shot him but then he was like you're a farmer not a hunter so I let him go and then I found uh, I started working in like electrical engineering and stuff and then this kid he's from uh, he's from uh, one of those medical shows on the USA Network he showed up and he was like hey I think that your dad is marrying my mom I'm pretty sure he's a con man and then that kid died and so I got really nervous and I looked into it some more and I said hey dad did you kill the guy no son come in here let's have some whiskey oh just kidding and he pushed me out a window and I fell eight stories and I shattered my back and then this weird guy with blonde hair came up to me and touched me on the shoulder said hey it's not your fault everything's gonna be okay i'm so sorry this happened to you and then he walked away and then i was paralyzed for four years and this guy matthew abaddon wheeled me around in the hospital for a while and told me that i should go on a walkabout and maybe that would fix everything up and so i spent the next little while uh working for a box company in tustin we made boxes and i uh, was fantasizing about the walkabout and i was also uh having a, a phone relationship with somebody who was uh who, who i called helen even though she wasn't helen and i'm sorry i called her peggy before obviously her her name is Helen. And then I went to Australia and they didn't let me go on the walkabout. And then I flew back to L.A., but we crashed on this island and now I can walk. But tell me about your sister. What <laughs> happened with her? <laughs> That's the thing is that Locke has. I don't think up- you'd be bored by the story. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could have occupied several afternoons instead of just quoting Nietzsche. But yeah, I mean, it also says that, you know, it shows how much Boone is sort of uh, become under Locke's, I wouldn't say control, but at least uh, under his possession a bit in that you know the boon could very easily talk to kate and sawyer and be like yeah locks opened up they're like oh really because he told us this really great story about this girl who apparently possessed a dog and the dog came and stayed with him for the, his foster mother for a few years but again because boone at Locke's sort of request has sort of closed everything off uh to people around him he's really just so focused on Locke, and i think that's the reason why he's just growing so frustrated with uh, this man that he's serving under is not providing him with any details about, you know, not necessarily why he should be working under him, but who he's working under. I think he's also frustrated because he did the Michelangelo thing and studied the problem for a while. And then he's like, got it. Boom. Trebuchet. We're doing trebuchet. And then they built the trebuchet and it probably took a long time to build the trebuchet. And then they used the trebuchet and the trebuchet 
doesn't work. It like explodes on impact and there's shrapnel everywhere. And Locke is so mad about it. And he's just like stomping around furious. And Boone's like, hey, John, you want to do something about that huge piece of shrapnel sticking out of your calf? And I feel like the filmmaking on this scene is, is so tight where he takes it out and then he holds it up and he studies it. And so much of the shrapnel is covered in blood, which yeah. really does the work for you to like be like, oh, that was in there. <laughs> that was like really in there. So he didn't feel that. And that's a problem. Part of me wonders, maybe in an alternate universe, this could have been when Locke became Iron Man, that he got dragged back to a cave and they said, we couldn't get the shrapnel out of your leg. So we had to coat it in some sort of electromagnetic element. But now your leg is super and it can fight crime. Like that would be Locke's uh, like personal best day right if he went from not being able to lose use his legs now his legs being the most powerful substance in the world yeah i think so just like i like kick the smoke monster in the face i think that'd be interesting just lock with like big robot legs walking (laughs) around that'd be great uh but he goes back to camp and it's it's nighttime and he's bandaged up his calf and he's sitting by a fire and he's like testing his leg and is he feeling anything and like he burns his foot with with the with an ember and he doesn't feel anything and he's very worried uh and i guess it's probably just like the sheer momentum of the situation later on that causes him not to feel anything but it did strike me that after he brings boone back to to jack in the caves in his battered shape that like do you think that there was ever a moment where Locke like suddenly walking then he's like Oh, oh yeah, shit! I burned an ember on the bottom of my foot. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, oh and the big gaping feel wound in, now. <laughs> the big gaping wound in my leg too. Yeah. Like, oh man, I really screwed up my legs to do this testing. Why did I do that? Yeah, I should have maybe not done that. Um, all right, so we we go back and we see that uh, that that Lock and Boone they they're still thinking about what to do with the hatch. They're trying to figure out a new plan. Uh, and if the next plan doesn't work, if they're not able to break the glass the next time, if they're not able to trebuchet their way into the hatch, do not worry. The island will tell us what to do. And this is the first time that Locke is like really speaking in that language to anyone else other than maybe Jack, right? Yeah, other, like, other than that white rabbit speech. And uh, I, I think that that's compelling too. this idea, you know, if, if we're trying to like deepen Boone's character a little bit more as he's on his way out the door here uh, and how he always kind of like fancies himself a Jack Shepard, right? Like he thinks that he should, he should be a leader. He thinks that he's supposed to be doing the important stuff out here, which I think is a big part of why he's so committed to Locke's cause and finding the hatch here. Um, but when Locke says that stuff to Jack back in the day, it kind of lands with Jack in that moment because he's so parched, he's so dehydrated, he's so crazy, he thinks he sees his dad in the jungle. Um, here with Boone, when he hears the island will tell us to, what to do, Boone is like severely weirded out by that comment. And that's like the typical reaction of people when Locke starts talking this way. Yeah, and I think that Jack's situation as well was in that moment, he was more willing to believe that the island was sort of some mystical force, which mirrors very nicely to how he's going to feel at the very end of the series. There's going to be a lot of time when he's more so the skeptic, but I think in that moment, he felt, to your point, so emotionally desperate and devastated that he's like, yeah, I believe in the power of the island, whatever the hell you're talking about. But I think that Boone at this point, I mean, any sort of mystical uh, experiences he had was purely by Locke's doing from that trippy paste. And so he is taking, I think, the much more logical approach to it. And I think what it also represents from Locke's end is uh, maybe less that he's regarding him as a Jack Shepard, but more so that 
this is one of the only people who Locke is letting down his guard in front of. Like, yeah. you, you, we do talk about him spreading vagaries and, as Boone quotes, a sort of Nietzsche-like wisdom. And I wonder how much of that is just a smokescreen to not get people to really, like, see inside him and what he believes in. And maybe, again, because he feels that Boone is loyal to him and only him, that he says, okay, he trusts me completely, so now I'm going to let it slip you know, why I feel like what my guiding force is, you know, who's the guy above me in the management chain here. And yeah, like you said, understandably, it does weird out Boone a little bit. I, I mean, there's so many strong things in this episode, but uh, one of the things that I, I've forgotten about in rewatching this, and I got reminded of it this time around, is Boone's sort of like waxing and waning relationship with Locke in this episode. Because, I mean, look at the reaction he has now and then compare it to a really prominent moment to the point where it's going to like send him to his death when he decides, okay, John, I'm going to pick, you know, I'm going to help you up and we're going to go to that beach craft. It's, it's a really interesting sort of mini arc within this episode that I think gets forgotten within the larger spectrum of what happens to Boone. I think the closing of Boone's story is actually pretty elegant. Um, and, and, and probably even more than, than we tend to give credit for. And I, I hope that's something that we can, we can pick apart a little bit more as we go. Cause I think that there's some fun stuff to talk about in that regard, even in this episode, but especially when we get to do no harm next week. Um, let's go to a flashback lock. Uh, he's got a poster for a lost dog in his car. Uh, and then he looks up and he sees, uh, Emily Locke and her big fricking coat is like just staring at him again, lurking. And he's like, you, okay, you, what is this? you? You have to want, I believe you have to imagine that Cooper, like, dressed her right like said hey here <laughs> yeah. wear this big fur coat so that he well he said you. he said to her right like that like uh or she says to Locke at the end of the episode he was always good to me about money uh so yeah he probably bought her a nice big fur coat wear this for john yeah well like you have to send several signals so that you know he'll notice you whether it's the red hair of Susie kurtz or the big fur coat she had to light some fireworks maybe if Locke wasn't paying attention to her like uh -huh. part of this was obviously him to notice her especially oh no she had to throw a nerf football at his face that's why yeah, she's looking go for to, go to aisle 15 but yeah. josh <laughs> here is where we get the first of many fake outs and one of the biggest frustrations in being a lost fan in these first three seasons the fake outs of john Locke being paralyzed or palolized yeah, but it is one of those things where this is how the show morphs for me from, um, you know, when you're watching it week to week, not knowing where we're going to now when you're watching it either as a binge or week to week, knowing where we're going. Right. Uh, and these 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 moments are, are much more delightful to me now than they were back then. I definitely was of that camp of like, oh, come on. Really? Yeah, because the kidney doesn't paralyze him either. Like, you know, like you just kept thinking that this is the second flashback. So, of course, we're going to get that answer. And we don't get that answer. Uh, and we don't get it for, you know, several episodes yet. Yeah, right now, I totally agree that in hindsight, it really doesn't play as frustrating. It more so just plays into this idea that poor Locke just gets crapped on in every single aspect of his life to the point where there actually could have been multiple times where he could have been paralyzed. Like, who says that about anyone's life? That there were multiple points in time where they could have lost access to the lower half of their body. And it's here where some dingus uh, backs up their car as Locke's trying to track down this mysterious woman in a fur coat and just gets completely farkist or carcassed in this regard. But he, <laughs> yeah. but he seems okay. He seems all right. And uh, he, he finds Emily. Uh, he's like, who the hell are you? She says, I'm your mommy. And then they go for coffee. Uh, and she drinks her coffee with a ton of sugar 
Uh, and that's just the one physical detail I would like to to say. Yeah, here. I guess I, they were not stingy with the sugar in Santa Rosa. That's my theory she, behind it. She she loves that sugar in her coffee. Uh, but Locke and, and Emily Locke are going to sit down for a meeting of the minds. And we're going to listen in. This is sound number one. Uh, look, Miss, uh, I don't know why you think I'm your son or how you found me, but you're adopted, aren't you? No, no, I was raised in a foster home. Not well, several foster homes, actually. Look, I don't mean to be rude. What do you want from me? I want to tell you that you're special. Very special. You're part of a design. You do realize that, don't you? That our meeting, me finding you, this is a sign of things to come. Great things. My father. Is he still alive? Still alive? Oh, John. Don't you understand? You don't have a father. You were immaculately conceived. This is coming out in December. I believe this is actually coming out maybe the a couple days after Christmas. I hope people have put out their I think it's nat- a couple days before. Uh, okay, well, I hope answer. people have yes. put out their nativity scenes with John Locke as the baby <laughs> <Yeah>. Jesus. <laughs> I'm just, I remember, I, I can see his face. My good buddy, Coconut Pete, a regular of the Lost Lives podcast back in the day. Uh, one of my, my best friends from, from college and, and still to this day. Uh, and one of like my, my really earliest co-pilots on, on watching Lost in the week to week in that first season. And I just, I can see his face so vividly right now. Uh, when that, when that line was dropped of, Oh, you don't have a father. You were immaculately conceived. And Pete and I both just like looked at each other and our hands immediately went to our heads as though the brains exploded inside. <laughs> and we we're like, well, how do we move forward from this? We have liquid brains now. Uh, it was like, excuse me? Uh, and I'm so grateful that within like the context of this episode, like immediately they're like, yeah, no, that's not actually what happened. That's a really, really crazy thing to say. But John Locke's the kind of person who might believe that, so, uh, which yeah, is so, very important for for his whole trajectory. So this scene on the first watch when you don't know what happens just plays as weird. I mean, outside of even the, the immaculate conception stuff, there's the whole, I want to tell you that you're special. You were part of a design as a sign of things to come. I think on the rewatch, it, it's, uh, it's, it's sad, right? Because you could tell that like, Granted, I actually don't know if the Immaculate Conception was something that Cooper wanted Emily to tell him, or if that was just sort of her going off script for a second, since we know that she does have a a bit of a history of mental illness. But knowing that, you know, essentially, I don't know how Cooper knew that this is what Locke particularly needed to hear, but this is hook, line, and sinker. Right. It's, it's, this is, yeah, it's his, it, this is his sweet spot. And that, I mean, that's Cooper's strength, though. He researches his people and he, he knows he knows how to like what the turnkey is. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's like, go tell John that he doesn't have a father. He's immaculately conceived. That'll get him uh, like that might be something that like he knows will work on somebody like John Locke. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know how much uh, 
we'll talk about this later. My theory is that the PI, the random PI guy that Locke hired, was uh, an, uh, uh, under the tutelage or under the advisement of Anthony Cooper himself. And maybe that streak goes both ways, where Cooper used this guy to research his son and find out all the random things that he was up to and was able to sort of get a nice profile on him. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> it's so brutal. <laughs> looking at looking at this as, as the con job it really is and knowing just how emotionally supple Locke is at this moment. And that it is crazy because like at this moment, this is a Locke who, yes, has had a hard childhood, but he has not gone through all the sadness that is going to come as a result of this kidney thing. You know, like the worst for John Locke is still to come. And this is still a very depressing moment, but it's not even like the bottom five of John Locke's most depressing moments on this, on, over the course of these flashbacks. All right, so on the island, uh, we're going to get into our side plot of Deus Ex Machina, which I think is often forgotten that it takes place in this episode. I don't think the side plot itself is forgotten, but I think it's forgotten that it exists within Deus Ex Machina. It's Sawyer needs glasses time. <laughs> well, I, maybe, maybe you're paying too much of a broad brush there, Michelangelo. I, I think that... Within that little, you know, three-word phrase, there is a lot of stuff with, you know, the Sawyer, Kate, and Jack of it all, which we start to see, you know, we obviously saw shades of this with things like Confidence Man and Outlaws, but the, the love triangle is really, you know, uh, the center of at least this side plot, where, yes, Sawyer needs glasses, but there's only one guy who can prescribe him with needing glasses, and it happens to be the one guy who hates his guts and also is like his main competition for the woman he's sweet on yeah and it's not just that i feel like uh this storyline in in tiny ways is um very demonstrative of a vast uh array of characters uh so it's not just like sawyer kate and jack a lot of other people are drawn into this in in tiny ways that just like show so much about who they are for instance sawyer's coming to sun He's like, are these the right leaves? Is this what's going to help? Uh, because Sun knows her way around the island's flora and fauna. And, yeah, and she, what, she's the pharmacist right now. You know, what's going to have, uh, yeah, the, the healing properties, the pharmaceutical properties that are that are going to work for your for your headaches. Uh, and sadly, uh, this is not going to work, uh, what, what Sun has offered to Sawyer. Uh, but I, I love that she's willing to do that. And I, I love that this is Sawyer's first real interaction with Sun now that he knows that he can come to her and speak english speak english uh with son um and i i love that that kate is is going to be here and is going to be around the garden because it's just once again stressing this idea that son and kate are friends this is a yeah. great friendship i love that dynamic it's 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 small in the grand scheme of things it has some payoff along the way but these two have a great history together uh and kate is obviously observing the fact that sawyer is having a headache and aspirin does not seem to be working. And Kate's going to do her Kate thing, where even though Sawyer's a scoundrel, she still cares about him. She's still a good person. She goes to Jack. She's like, Sawyer's got headaches. Thinks something's wrong. And Jack's like, yeah, you know, I would love to be a doctor right now. I'd love to do that thing where, like, I actually do my job and check in on the guy and see if he's okay. But if I do that, all I'm going to get is a snappy one-liner. And if I'm lucky, a brand new nickname. I'm over it. Just over it. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I think outside of the flashbacks has been Sawyer's characterization. So we sort of see, like, how the others view him at that point. I will also say Kate walks in on Jack shaving at the caves, which I think is, like, a nice lampshade moment so that people can sort of explain away, like, 
Well, if they're living on an island for a month and a half, like why why don't they have big beards and scraggly hair? Is that it, it, they had some toiletries aboard the plane? So we sort of see it here that yeah, Jack would want to shave. He's not full end of season three yet with the big, big depressed beard. You would think though that maybe some of these people would just like after a certain point be like, ah, screw it, I'm just going with a beard. For well, a while. I know, I know that Michael's hair is going to get like super long. That's going to get of long, and, and Desmond's going to grow out the beard, and Sawyer's going to grow out the beard for a time uh people are gonna grow out the beard but i feel like yeah i feel like some of them i guess like it, it makes sense which ones shave and which ones don't but i would i would have loved to have seen like heavily bearded john Locke. you know like yeah <laughs> like that's a great character yeah i would i would love that look like the no hair but like the big bushy beard it would be really interesting and it would evoke like those i mean speaking of nietzsche some of those like great 1800s philosophers or scientists yeah, yeah, it'd be fun. It'd be fun. We'd give him some spectacles, maybe a tri-corner cap. <laughs> okay, I, I was with you until the tri-corner hat. <laughs> I don't know why we yeah. want him to look like Ben Franklin. Yeah, He's going to meet another Ben soon enough. It's the, the, the Quaker Oats knockoff in the, in the Swan Station that uh, Dharma <laughs> supplied. Um, all right, let's go to sound number two. And it's, I, I wonder how this will play just on audio. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if you feel like we need to set it up a little bit more, feel free to step in, Mike, but I'm kind of inclined to just let her rip and then we can unpack it. You're late. Late for what? Late for work. I think I'm done working, John. I'm sorry, what? This is useless. You can't open that thing up. You say you can, but you can't. No, don't tell me what I can do. Don't you get it? It's dead end. You're not getting in. That's impossible. We didn't find this by accident. We're supposed to. Oh, we're supposed to. We're supposed to find this, right? We're supposed to open it, right? Then tell me something, John. If we're supposed to open it, then why the hell haven't we opened it yet? The island will send us a sign. The island will send us a sign. All that's happening now is our faith is being tested, our commitment. But we will open it. The island will show us how. What kind of sign will the island send us? Huh, John? Did you see that? Boom. Teresa falls up the stairs. Teresa falls down the stairs. Teresa falls up the stairs. Teresa falls down the stairs. Teresa falls up the stairs. Teresa falls down the stairs. No, please. Teresa falls up the stairs. Well, Locke was creepy in one of Claire dream- Claire's dreams, Josh. Turnabout is fair play. I think uh, it's uh, it's time for him to get what's coming to him. Yeah, what a weird thing that just happened. So Locke just tripped balls in the middle of the night. Uh, that whole scene is illusory because he wakes up at the end of it and he's just yes. alone. It's night. So that's, so that's what, I, what I wanted to make mention of specifically because in that case... It's obvious then that Boone is representing some part of his psyche here. It's almost like the angel and devil on his shoulders talking to one another in the course of a dream that, of course, John is having a test of faith. You know, he's having some skepticism. And here that is in the form of Boone actually verbalizing it. We, we had never heard him express it, but I really wonder how much how much of this little Boone part of him has been there throughout this entire Hatch project, especially as prospects have grown nigh. 
Oh, so you think that he's been hallucinating Boone a bunch during this process? No, I think that Boone just represents, you know, how, again, obviously you and I have been very open about, you know, our mental health issues, but like that voice of anxiety is always sort of there at times, especially when you're feeling your most frantic. This is just sort of like if you had a dream and your anxious voice like took the form of somebody you were working with. Oh, so Boone's his anxiety demon? Exactly. Oh, man, that's a hot anxiety demon. I wish my anxiety demon looked like Ian Summerhalder. That sounds maybe, good. <laughs> maybe from now on we can manifest this. That we'll just all have Ian Summerhalder appear in like our worst panic attacks. Mine looks like a terrible, like two foot tall, pot bellied pig on two feet with sharp teeth, and he's always smiling at me. And he's in the corner of every room. Well, uh, let's his not name's, go. F- his name's Phil. Yeah, let's not go full Legion here. Uh, no, we'll make it Ian Summerhalder from now on. I'm going to oh, make that a thing. Sounds good. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm down. I'm yeah, down you know what? In fact, thing. Christmas Carol, all three ghosts, <laughs> now Ian Summerhalder. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, Teresa falls up the stairs. Teresa falls down the stairs. Iconic. I don't know that it makes that much sense. I don't know about the falling up the stairs piece of it, but I, it sounds I, I, great. I think you can fall up the stairs. Like, when you go up the stairs and you trip... Like, does, doesn't that count as falling up the stairs? Not, like, actually falling down the stairs, but in reverse. Yeah. Also, one time I got very high at a fish concert and panicked, and I started to walk away from the crowd, and I <laughs> went into the aisle and flew up the stairs as I was trying to walk, and the stairs rushed up to meet me. So you could absolutely fall upstairs. Uh, and everyone around me was like, hey, man, are you all right? I was like, definitely not, but I'm going to go outside and get a chicken sandwich and be just fine. And that is exactly what I did. And everything was great. And then so I quit maybe- smoking weed, like, two weeks later. Are you implying that Locke should have gotten a chicken sandwich or a boar sandwich? Yeah, a boar sandwich may have saved Boone's life. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. But yeah, this is this is a very weird one. So obviously... He's in the know, wheelchair again. He's in the wheelchair. His mom we have, is there and she's yeah, pointing at the beach craft. Which has not crashed yet. He actually sees it crashing. So, I mean, we'd have to assume that the island... It's futzing with his mind at this portion of time, considering it's showing events from the other people. It's showing events that have happened in the past. The question is, is it more of a Jacob tactic or a man in black tactic? I think that it's more of a man in black tactic. I think man in black is a meddler. And Jacob isn't much of a meddler other than inviting people to the island. That's how he meddles. He brings mm. you there, but he doesn't really talk to you other than that. I mean, like, that's the whole point of Richard Alpert, right? That's why Richard Alpert's around. He's his consigliere. You're the guy who gets to talk to people, and I'm just going to be working working my fabrics <laughs> in the four-toed statue. I'm just making lots of carpets, uh, tapestries for days. Uh, like, he doesn't really do you like the, I'm in your dreams you know, that's the smoke monster. Like, hey, I'm in your dreams. I'm, yeah, this, I'm Phil, the anxiety demon. Yes, the I'm smoke monster dreams. is the Freddy Krueger. And I guess uh, is Jason, uh, I guess uh, Jacob would be, not the Jason. I guess if there was like a friendly person who's like, ah, you should do, it'd be like a guidance counselor versus Freddy Krueger, essentially. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird, weird, trippy scene. And these are, you know, a dime a dozen throughout lost over the course of the run but it's fairly early in the series and we haven't had a ton like this so this is you know it really pops in that month in that first uh in that first watch through i remember especially for me being like oh what the hell is going on here and i think that that's one of the reasons why this episode is so much fun this is one of the big wtf episodes of lost <laughs> up to this point 
Yeah, well, let's remember that within like a five-minute period, we had John Locke being declared the next Jesus. Right. And then him having this weird sort of Twin Peaks on an island-esque dream. Like, yeah, this is a, this is a pretty aesthetically crazy episode of Lost, but it threads so well in, you know, your faith— especially when you're really devoted to the cause can lead your mind to go into very weird unusual places and it just shows how again Locke presents this hardened image but his mind is pretty emotionally supple or at least willing to be convinced to do something and you know much like Michelangelo you're gonna have someone be able to get into that mind and mold it into the David or whatever statue they want it to be so Locke wakes up from the dream and it's morning time and he comes to Boone, who's sleeping at the beach. Seems like Boone sleeps at the beach and Locke sleeps at the caves. Do you think they'd save time on the commute if they were, like, commuting together? Yeah, we're starting to get into, like, Game of Thrones Season 7 territory with the distance between the beach and the caves. It apparently seems like they're next-door neighbors at this no, point. No, everybody's just, like, gotten really good at walking three miles really fast. You know, I think yeah. that everybody's, like, gotten very good at clearing three miles in, uh, in like, 20 minutes. Yeah, everyone just run again. Like I said, the lost cross country team needs to be a thing. If more than <laughs> yeah. if more than six people had made it off the island, they could have started a league. Lost track, lost track. Uh, but Locke wakes up Boone and says, "We got to go." And this is the final morning of Boone's life. It's the last day of Mister Boone Carlisle's life. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy because I mean, do no harm is probably one of the most. Uh, truncated episodes in terms of timeline and that it all takes place over the course of one night into the next morning. And yeah, if you put the two together, this is the final less than 24 hours. Boone just slept, you know, and woke up for the last time. Okay, so flashback time. Uh, Locke is going to be face-to-face with a PI. Private investigator is going to give us some some intel on Emily Annabeth Locke in 10,000 words or less. It's a 99% certain match that this is John's mother. Uh, She had schizophrenia. Uh, When she's on her medicine, she's all right. Uh, And this guy says that Locke's father didn't seek you out. He may not even know that you exist. And I've done this this job enough that I know when when you poke around here too much, it often doesn't end happily. Do you want me to keep poking? And Locke says, yeah, I do. I want to meet my dad. I want to know anyway. Uh... And I know that you you hypothesize that this guy is working with Anthony Cooper. Uh, and I think you could read it both ways even here still, where on the one read is just the surface read of just take him at his word. And like, yeah, I've done this a lot. This typically doesn't work well. And the other one is like, this guy's like, you poor schmuck. Like, I'm happy to lose this case. Like, I'm happy to, like, disappoint Anthony Cooper if it means, like, you don't have to go and get your kidney ripped out for nothing. Uh, but... John Locke wants he he's, he's he's handing out kidneys at this point. He's ready to go, or at least one. Well, I wonder though if he is working for Cooper. If actually, like, I don't want to go into I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of everything here is a con. But I wonder if the I've done this enough times to know what it isn't meant to be. If that's reverse psychology, like maybe in again in this guy's research, he knows that Locke's fundamental statement is "Don't tell me what I can't do," and he says, "Great, the one thing you need to do with Locke." Tell him what he can't do, because that's going to make him want to do it more. <laughs> yeah, that's the tactic. Uh, so Locke's going to go to Cooper's house. Which which I should also mention, uh, I love Locke's cute little VW red bug. Got a great little car. 
Uh, it's like the the very tall man in the Simpsons. Yeah, I was about to say that, like, oh, this is the only car I can afford. Yeah. Hey, everybody, it's that kid who laughs at everyone. Yeah. Let's that, like, that, laugh that, at him. That's what he wants to do with Anthony Cooper, right? Yeah. Anthony Cooper is his Nelson. Yeah, yeah, he wants to march him around Springfield. So <laughs> Pulling down his pants. <laughs> Man, I love the brig and I love the way that they settle the Anthony Cooper story, but in the alternate universe where where Locke gets Cooper to die by embarrassment by parading him around the island like honking the Dharma van behind him. Yeah. Blow them kisses. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Uh but here's Steady Eddie, the security guard, just pounding Dr. Pepper. Uh which we should also mention how many flavors does Dr. Pepper have? Uh, is it a number? 23. Is that true? That's true. That has a little 23. I was a big Dr. Pepper fan in my youth. And oh, so wow. that number 23 is emblazoned in my mind. Do you still drink a Dr. Pepper? A little bit. I've sort of like uh, careened less from the soda, especially since like I have gotten my caffeine fix more from the coffee mm. variety, especially in the wake of my son's birth. Mm. Uh, so I've sort of strayed away from soda in general, but that was my soda choice definitely for a you're, while. You're a D-peps. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So the, uh, Eddie, the security guard, is a little skeptical at first, but then he lets him in. I guess he hasn't been clued into the con at this point. Uh, well, or again, it's reverse psychology. Yeah, uh, but he I, seems like a very remorseful guy later on. He's like, I hate this. this I also like uh, Locke saying like, hey, you know, I don't want anything. And it's like, you might not, but Cooper's going to want a lot from you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's meet Anthony Cooper. Let's take the sound number three. This is John Locke meeting his father for the very first time. Well, this is awkward. Thank you for seeing me, sir. I'm, uh, John. Something tells me I'm going to want a drink for this. You want a drink? Um, yeah. All right, great. Scotch okay? Yeah, that's... Thanks. So who found who? I'm sorry, sir? Emily, your mother. Did she find you or did you find her? She found me. How did she look? All right, I guess. She say anything about me? She said I didn't have a father, that I was immaculately conceived. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I guess that makes me God, huh? I didn't even know you existed until a year after you were born. She told me she wasn't even going to have the baby, did you, at all. And she drops off the face of the planet. When she turns up again, she's asking me for money. Telling me she put you up for adoption. You gonna drink that or what? You have a family of your own? No, sir. Me neither. <laughs> I tried it a couple times. Didn't take. Do you hunt? No. <laughs> no. You're not one of those animal rights nut jobs, are you? No. No, sir. What are you doing this Sunday? Nothing. You want to go hunting? Uh, I'd like that. Yeah, yeah, I'd like that very much. So there's a lot to talk about with this scene, but first, I just want to give commendations. The Anthony Cooper character sucks, but Kevin Ty, he just he's a awesome. great job. He's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah, and, and, and you, it is worth stating that he's this character is great. And he's you can, horrible, but he's a great character. 
And you can tell, even from an audio perspective, you know, one of the first, one of the major components to any scene of acting is this idea of status. Who has the higher status and who has the lower status? Because that's going to influence yes, tactics that people exactly. take. Exactly, Obi Wan was really good at stressing the importance of the higher ground. Yes, exactly, uh, because that doesn't that makes you not burn up in the lava. But basically, Anthony Cooper, from his very first line, is establishing status here, and you could hear it in both his performance and Terry O'Quinn's, where Terry O'Quinn's calling him sir you know he's a kid yeah he's a kid he's a boy and he feels very awkward to be in his home you see cooper's manipulation tactics already take hold when he says you're gonna drink that or what essentially encouraging his son to drink i guess that makes me god huh is like a fun joke but at the same time it's almost prophetic i wouldn't say that you know cooper becomes Locke's god i mean he does sort of uh fawn over him for quite some time but, yeah, but Locke, he kind of is man yeah, like he's, he's gonna fixate around him from here on out he's hades and he's like brought john to hell and this is hell he's like drink up son before you burn and you can't anymore uh it's terrifying it's you know it's it's intense and like kind of like uh intimidating on the first watch anyway of like this is Locke meeting his dad and i think it's also worth noting that you know, if the, if you were a very detail oriented viewer of Lost, it's not that long ago. It's two episodes ago that John talks about his father for the first time, and mm-hmm. Walt says, "Was he a, was he a cool dude?" And he's like, "No, he's not. He sucked." You know, like he he really lets you know what the ending of this story is going to be. So does that suck a little bit of the drama out of here? Maybe to some degree. But what you're hearing, what you're watching in this episode, uh, every time you watch it, including that first time, you you have this sense of what what it is that you're you're getting because he's John is on two feet and you know that that's not going to be the case forever uh, is that you're you might not be getting the story of how John Locke got paralyzed, but you are watching a car crash. You know, you, yeah. you, are, you are watching an accident occur in real time and it's not even an accident. I mean, this is, you know, a, a, a malicious crash. This is uh, this is a premeditated destructive act. Uh, and it's it's it does have this sort of I don't know. It's got this like this very legitimate devilish quality it's like john is having a drink with satan it's it's a little faustian it's him sort of like signing away his soul not necessarily like formally but in interacting with this guy he's going to drag his life into an absolutely terrible place so again if i'm going back to you know what do we think cooper's lying about versus what do we think he's telling the truth about so we'll see later on in the flashbacks the birth of john locke from Emily Locke. And what makes Anthony Cooper just even more terrible of a character is apparently uh, he's had sex with a 15-year-old and got her pregnant. Uh, but And we see when John Locke, you know, ends up being bequeathed unto the world that Emily is questioning adoption. So I guess my question is, Josh, obviously we know that he is selling him a bit of a line at this point, but do you think the part about him not knowing he had a son for a while and Emily, you know, immediately giving up the baby for adoption were valid. I think it's possible. My my memory of it is John Locke is is born very prematurely, right? Like she yeah, she's like, in a, like she's, four, four months early, I think. She's in an accident. Um and I, I think like even she at that point was fairly resistant to the idea of even acknowledging the pregnancy i don't remember the storyline very well it's obviously a long time away from from where we are in the watch it's cabin fever where we're gonna where we're gonna find that out so end of season four territory yeah we're with richard alpert creeping outside the window i know yeah he gives him the things and then he takes the things back it's very rude yeah you can't be a taker backer richard alpert but we'll save him for a long long time from now but yeah i mean this is a 
momentous meaning because this is the man that is going to change John Locke's life forever in so many ways, but it's under this friendly guise. And I mean, you look at who Anthony Cooper is presenting himself as, and it's everything that Locke wanted to be, as we saw throughout Walkabout, right? He sees all these pictures of him on adventures. He's asking him to hunt with him. Like, I think that even though Locke despises Anthony Cooper, there are still tenets of that personality that he strives to achieve. Maybe it's the complicated daddy issues of it all, but that's something he still wants to work towards. All right, so back on the island, at the hatch, Locke is going to tell Boone all about the dream he's had. It's the most real thing he's ever experienced. Um, And he says, now I know where we need to go. I know what we need to do in order to open up the hatch. And Boone thinks Locke is on, like, wacky paste. He's like, are you on the thing that you put on my head that made me see my sister die? And Locke says, no, this is legit. And by the way, here's the secret code word. Teresa falls up the stairs. Teresa falls down the stairs. You were saying it in the dream. And Boone is now, like, very weirded out. But weirded out in that way of, like, oh, God. Crazy bald man is actually... He just just said a thing that is, like, totally legit. So this might actually be real. Yeah, you could tell it's... I mean, it's definitely a step away from the skeptic direction. But still, you could probably assign logic of, like, oh, no, maybe he overheard me mention it, just happenstance one time. Maybe he was able to get it out of Shannon at some point. Even though I think that at the point that Boone, this whole Teresa thing happened, Boone was six, so I don't think uh, Shannon had become part of his life at that moment. But, yeah, it's a weird enough detail to make Boone at least shut his mouth for the time being and decide to follow Locke. All right, so at the beach, Jack's going to come by. Jin and Michael are working on the raft. It's coming together really fast. Apparently the fire is in a total loss. They learned some things from building the first one. Yeah, and uh, now- I love. I love. Do you think that's sort of a reference to like just the creative process in general? Like uh, the hey, we created we created this thing and it burned up, but hey, there's always rewrites. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. I like that. <laughs> I think that that's good. I'm happy to read it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, listen, I think from our perspectives, uh, it's definitely like again, well, I'll take back that same stamp from numbers and put it on there. But I don't know. I, I always like to hope that that's like a writer's room thing of like. Man, first drafts are a bitch, aren't they? But we got another raft that we built, and this one will hopefully set sail and not get robbed by others. Uh, so, yeah, we find out that that uh, Michael's learning some Korean. He knows how to say faster and idiot. <laughs> this is fun. The developing friendship between Jin and Michael is fun. Uh, and here's the developing, I don't know if we're calling it friendship, but uh, a really great exchange between Jack and Sawyer is about to occur. Uh, Jack's going to pay a house call. To, to James Sawyer Ford. And let's listen in on it. Sound number four, please. I hear you're having trouble with your head. Well, now she got you making house calls. You're sensitive to the light, too, huh? You know what? I'm sensitive to you. All right. We'll see you. Doc. Sensitivity to light, that bad? Depends. On what? On what's causing your headaches? It's not like it's a tumor or something. What makes you think it's a tumor? I don't. Great. Okay, then. My uncle! He, uh... died of a brain tumor. Yeah? That run in the family? Tumors? What type of tumor was it? The type that kills you. Do you smell anything funny? 
Brain tumors bring on phantom smells, maybe like something burning. Just headaches. Well, I'm sure you're fine then. Look, if this is worrying you, there's a couple of tests that I could do. Sorry, Doc. Sounds fun, but... My insurance ran out. <laughs> insurance ran out. That, that's a good one. I also, uh, we cut it out because it's obviously more visual, but the scene ends with, after Jack walks away, Sawyer does indeed start <laughs> sniffing because he become paranoid about those phantom smells. Yeah, and this becomes the point in the series where Sawyer's superpower develops where he can smell phantoms on the island. So uh, so it really helps explain the, 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 the great friendship between James and Miles later in the yeah, series. Yeah, I love where how Miles sort of- can talk to ghosts, but Sawyer can smell them. It's sort of become like the see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil with the monkeys between <laughs> yeah. Hurley, Miles, and Sawyer. Well, this- well, you know, uh, yeah, he, it's, it's, uh, th- th- but Miles can both see and hear the evil, uh, and and Hurley can uh, talk with Hurley them. can can see and speak to the evil, uh, but it's it's James who can who can smell them. No one else has that. Yeah, and considering they're on an island, like you would imagine those are some pretty... Those phantom smells. <laughs> dirty, smelly ghosts. Yeah. This scene, on, on paper, you would just think like it's a proverbial dick measuring contest between Sawyer and Jack, but I actually think there's a more weight to this scene than the initial approach because I feel like the way these two are coming at one another is they see each other sort of like vulnerabilities or at least like somewhat care for one another but they still have to put up the guise you know of sawyer being the smarmy one and jack not caring uh it's a really interesting scene for sawyer particularly where you know he provides a snide remark to jack and jack walks away and then sawyer has to take down that mask for a second to be like hey you know it's not like a tumor or something is it you actually see some fear there and we haven't seen that fear presented from sawyer uh outside of like in front of kate for a very very long time so it's a really interesting tete-a-tete where i think sawyer lets down his guard but at the end at the end of it he's not fully gonna let it go he you know when jack asks for further tests he's gonna put up that guard again and be like oh i don't think my insurance is gonna cover it and i think jack can notice that he doesn't exactly he doesn't really mean that but at the same time much like he said in the scene earlier with kate he doesn't really want to deal with sawyer's guff in general so he decides to take him for his word yeah well it's it's just a great uh it's another great example of the way sawyer like Sawyer is so consistent in a lot of ways where he it, like think back to like the, the conversation he had with Saeed in Outlaws where he's like asking him about the whispers and he's like, what did you hear? So he's like, no, but maybe like, you know, like the way that he does that, like it's very similar here where like the moment that the other person starts to like drill down into the truth uh, that you're experiencing as James Sawyer Ford. Uh, and that would mean that like you would have to be vulnerable in that moment. He yeah. cracks wise. Uh, so here, that's where insurance ran out. I also, I always loved that read of insurance. Yeah, that, that, that's that a emphasis. good one. Yeah, insurance ran out. Uh, it's just great. It's great. Again, that's why this is a this is a, a worthy storyline for sure. Uh, it just it pulls a lot out of uh, some of these characters. Yeah, and I think that also it's great on Kate, who you know is essentially noticing what both these guys are are not saying and is like, we just need to all get in the same room and figure this out. Like, I, I do love how she looks past all these facades because she knows these people at their core. You know, I feel like uh, we talked about this a bit, but it really is crazy how, especially at this point in the series, Kate has so many close connections with so many people who feel like they can confide in her. Even someone like Sawyer, she knows the most about Sawyer by far. And it is, 
you know, I guess that's one big reason why she's a leader in the clubhouse when it comes to MVP points is because despite her never really being comfortable or truthful with anyone on the island for quite some time, everyone seems to be comfortable and truthful with her. Yeah, 100%. All right, Boone and Locke on the road. Uh, Boone thinks maybe maybe, uh, it's possible that I had said Teresa's name while we were at the hatch, while I was talking to myself. I was like, "Eh, I guess that's possible, but you didn't. And I would know. Uh, And then Locke starts to fall. He goes wobbledy wobbledy drop, uh, not yet down into his grave plot, but he is uh, he he wipes out. His legs are not working out so well, uh, and then they see something in the tree. There's a dead priest there. There's a worm in the eye socket. This is very gross. Yeah, and this is uh, this is not Yemi. I believe the other one's name is Gordy. And I don't was, remember. Yeah. And this was and this was the actual like Yemi was a real priest. This was the not priest. This was yeah. the cosplaying priest. The cosplay. <laughs> That's a very kind way of describing this guy. Uh, we go to a flashback. John goes to Anthony's house. Morning, Eddie. Uh, should be noted that this is the first of a couple of Eddies. For yeah, I was gonna Locke. say like, have we found a new Brian slash Tom, Tom for just yeah. names that Lost likes to go back to the well for? And not this, only that, this is the second Eddie in Locke's life. Yes, yeah, I think we should do another Survivor Lost uh, Brant Steele uh, Eddies versus Toms versus Brian's. My money, listen, I know that, uh, you know, I, I think that Eddie the Undercover Cop could do like a Tony Vlachos-esque game and just completely run train on all those Bryans and Toms. I think the Bryans are in big trouble. I, I, th- I, I favor the Toms. There's the, there's the most Toms. There's a lot of Toms. And one of them is Mr. Friendly. Yeah, but Mr. Friendly's going to be too big of a jury threat given his last name. So I think that he's yeah, going to be. Yeah, social you know, game is too good. He's going to be shot, and then, you know, <laughs> someone's going to say, like, that's for the kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so Locke goes in and he sees Anthony's getting dialysis. Uh, and Locke says, oh, or Anthony says, you just weren't supposed to be here until 12. Locke says, I thought you said 11. So here's here's my theory. Yeah, he's, I, I th- he, that's deliberate. I think Anthony could be out. I think he did say eleven. Yeah, of I think Absolutely. I think he wanted. I I think the dial. I think the kidney need and the dialysis is real, and I think he purposely set everything up to have Locke. Yeah, see exactly. This. Like he needs uh, a million percent. No brainer. Absolutely. I mean, th- his whole thing is he's grooming John Locke into being in you know uh, inclined to give him his freaking kidney. Well, so Locke he needs already to, like, has good grooming. Have you seen that hair? You know, it's got to be. It's show don't tell, right? Like, so he's he's showing him. Yeah, I do dialysis and. I need a new kidney. I'm on the donor list, but I'm an old man, and it's a long list. Uh, and Cooper says, like, the dialysis is going to work for a while. It's going to be fine. Uh, but I'll, I'll get done here. We'll have a nice lunch, and we'll go shoot some birds. Yeah, I guess going from birds to boars is maybe not that too hard of a transition, right, for Locke? Yeah, I guess. I don't know what... At uh, least alphabetically. Yeah, well, shooting birds and then, like, throwing knives at boar. It's that's the difference. I think throwing knives at birds seems like that would be a difficult game. Yeah, I mean, considering that some no- birds are smaller than a knife, I could imagine so. I think that could be tough. Um, so back on the island, they're looking at the priest, Nigerian priest, and he's got a gun. So maybe, maybe not a Nigerian priest. Yeah, and Locke sort of tries to play CSI here, but I don't know what his sort of uh, prognosis here of like, well, you know, they might have been here for might take hundreds of years for the clothes to decompose. Didn't Jack say like the opposite? In House of the Rising Sun, I feel like they just didn't get their figures right, and I I can't remember if an other uh, said that Jack was wrong. Yeah, uh, whether what was, it was that, uh, what was that you said earlier about rewrites? Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say like build build that second rap. But yeah, so yeah. so so technically speaking, so Locke said that uh, the clothes would decompose in two years, 
And in House of the Rising Sun, Jack said it would take 40 or 50 years for clothing to degrade. Yeah, so uh, somewhere in there is the unless right Unless that worms into eyeballs and clothing. That's a pretty big gulf between answers. Um, all right, so back on the beach... People are smashing things. Waves are crashing. Yeah, well, what is going on here? Why is someone just hammering on shrapnel for no good reason? Maybe they, they're they uh, hammering fish because uh, they saw oh, Jin do that. Jin. Like, yeah. Yes, so humane. My theory is that this is the drummer of the beachside band, and they're Ooh. trying to rehearse next to Sawyer's tent. Yeah, yeah. They're, well, it's uh, Island Stomp. Uh, they're all percussionists. <laughs> it's called Crash. <laughs> it's called Crash. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sawyer's gonna throw a throw a fit. He's like, "Could you guys stop? Please, just stop, stop smashing everything." And Kate watches it all. She's like, "All right, I'm taking you to Jack." And Sawyer has maybe the line of the episode, other than the very last line of the episode, which is, "Do I get a lollipop?" <laughs> it would only have been made better if he said, "Do I get a wowie pop?" Yeah, it's just so funny. Uh, she's like dragging him to his doctor's appointment, uh, and now Jack is going to drag Sawyer. Uh, let's uh, since Kate is eavesdropping on the doctor's appointment, which I think is like maybe a little uncool of Jack. Look, to doctor allow patient confidentiality is out the window at this is point it? on the island. I guess. I guess it shouldn't be though, right? I mean, this is uh, the next episode's going to be do no harm. He's doing some harm. By letting Kate be here for this. Uh, abusing his power for sure. I think this is pretty uncool as a doctor. But I'm not that mad at it because it's a great scene. Let's listen in. When did the headache start? A few days ago, a week maybe. Do you have to be here? Do you have them when you wake up in the morning? Usually they hit me in the middle of the day. What the hell are you doing with that thing? Checking to see how your pupils respond to changing stimuli. What's that? That knot. Would you just let him do his thing? I'm letting him, but I want to know what the hell he thinks. I, should... I think you should just shut up and relax. What the hell are you doing? <clears throat> Have you ever had a blood transfusion? What? No. Taking pills for malaria? Nope. Have you ever had sex with a prostitute? What the hell's that got to do with anything? Is that a yes? <sighs> yes. And have you ever contracted a sexually transmitted disease? I'm going to take that as another yes. When was the last outbreak? Go to hell, Doc. I know he deserved it, but... He needs glasses. You dick! (laughs) That would be a jackass in that moment, but... uh... Look, Sawyer's such a prick that I I think that Jack could be mostly forgiven for dunking on him when he's got the opportunity to do it. I don't know. I feel like Sawyer is like, even though he's been dragged here, he is pretty vulnerable in this moment. So I do feel like it's uncool. While, while, it's while uncool. Jack is dunking on him, it's like dunking on a seven year old. You know what? I I I love it from Jack, and also like I have a I, I lose some respect for him here as well because like. You're a doctor, man. This is uncool. This is, like, supposed to be your thing. You're supposed to make people feel safe when you're doing the doctor-doctor thing. Uh, but Jack's also, at his core, a bit of, bit of an asshole. Yeah. Uh, so it's very in character. Uh, it's just not the, the, uh, it's not the best side of his character. But it is very funny. 
Very funny. And that line read of, he needs glasses, is pretty uh, good. Josh, was the story of you finding out you needed glasses as <laughs> no. epic as that? No. I was in fifth grade, and they're like, son, you're blind. You need glasses. Well, that sounds like a Jack Shepard type of optometrist. Yeah, uh, it was basically just like, you're going to need glasses. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Everything's very fuzzy. <laughs> So, oh, you mean everything just isn't fuzzy in normal life? Yeah, it was a it was an eye opener, quite literally. Um, we're gonna go from that sound straight into our next sound, our sixth sound of the episode. It's gonna be back with Boone and Locke, and Johnny Locke. He's struggling to move, and he's going to explain to Boone why, and he's gonna share some of his not at all boring story. What's going on, John? Nothing. Man. I can barely walk, man. The wound from the shrapnel. That's your right leg, John. What's wrong with your left? I'm fine. Now stop asking. That's it. Let's go back. I'm fine. No, you're not. Let me get you back to Jack. No. Jack wouldn't know. The first thing about what's wrong with me. John. John. No. No. What is wrong with you? You crazy? I was in a wheelchair. What? Paralyzed for four years. The plane, our plane, I was in that chair when we took off, but not after we crashed. Why were you in a wheelchair? Doesn't matter anymore. But, but this island, it changed me. It made me whole. Now it's trying to take it back, and I don't know why. But it wants me to follow what I saw. What? I know it sounds crazy. Four weeks ago, I wouldn't have believed it myself, but you and I are here for a reason. There's something that we were meant to find. Something that's going to help us get into the hatch. I know it. But we got to keep going. Okay. Can you move your legs? Just help me up, son. so so much power in that word son you know it's not just a quan right you know it's it's we're gonna see the power of that word in the very next scene when when cooper and Locke are shooting birds and and Locke gets one and he says good shot son and it's the first time John's ever heard that. And I don't think that John's being manipulative here with Boone. Not at all. I think it, I think it's quite the opposite. I think he is so devoted and so desperate to get to this beachcraft, thinking that this is the only way to get what he wants, that he's just willing to let all the beans spill and just tell Boone the entire thing. And we'll definitely get into, especially in the other section about, you know, was it Locke's fault that Boone died, or how much blame should we give to him? But I, I do want to remark here that what Boone did in this scene was a conscious choice. And I think, to go back to your point earlier about, you know, uh, the end of Boone, it is such an interesting character beat to me. And, I, and, you know, you have to wonder, is this because of his connection that he built with Locke? Is it because maybe he has some part of him that does have this idea of faith and, and wants to do something uh, that you know that helps the island maybe it's just out of sure boredom i'm not entirely sure but boone has that moment where Locke has just opened himself up to him and boo could very easily turn around walk away and say i'm not i'm done with this hatch crap but he decides in that moment 
you know what? I'm going to move forward with you, John. And unfortunately, it's what ends up sending him up into that beach craft. But it is a conscious decision made on his part. Yeah, it's great, man. It's just great. It's he's he's trying to help him out. He's like he sees this guy struggling, very obviously struggling. Um, but he also sees a guy who just who needs something so desperately. So, like, what's the thing this guy needs more immediately? Does he need to go back and get his legs looked at, or does he have to find what it is he's looking for? But either way, the the calculation that Boone makes, I don't even think that it's like Boone is doing what he does here because he like really believes in what Locke is looking for. Yeah, I no, I I think it's just that he. I think he believes that, that this is what Locke needs right yes, now. Yes, it's just it's someone to say that they believe him, uh, and that's and that's it's what very he's doing. kind. It's very kind. Yeah. So. On the lock side of things, how do you feel about the whole uh, him losing the ability to walk over the course of this episode? Do you think this is an island machination? Is this psychosomatic due to his own waning faith? I think it's uh, if if the island can giveth, the island can taketh away, right? Like I think that that tracks for me. Um, whether you want to blame it on Smokey McSmokerson or not, you know, whatever. But like I I I don't think that this is. Uh, that this is all just in his head because it never really happens again. I mean, like he's going to have other moments where he loses abilities, you know, he's going to, or when he breaks his leg, but it'll close on a hatch door. He'll fall exactly. down a well, like exactly. Locke's it, legs have not, uh, this is probably one of the better days for them actually. And just not working. I think that there is this idea of the Island is like constantly trying to kill him. <laughs> mm. And, uh, even in the face of that, are you still going to push forward? Are you, are you still, will you still, will you stand up? You know, will you get back down after you've been thrown out of a proverbial eight story, you know, building? Um, will you, will you keep walking? And to a, to a T every time he does, you yeah. know, even, even if, even if he, uh, you know, the, the closest he ever gets to walking away is the hatch is letting it, uh, letting the, the timer go all the way down. And very swiftly, he uh, pivots back to uh, the the path of faith. Uh, very even s- more swiftly, he pivots to I was wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, and after that, he never really pivots away again. Uh, there's times where he's certainly deeply frustrated, uh, and there's times when he's very close to death's door, but he always gets back up until he can anymore, until he literally is is done. Um, yeah. So I I don't think that this is just something that's in his head. I think that the body of work suggests that the mousetrap game that he is unwittingly playing involves this quality, this idea that you're I'm going to I'm going to rob you of things along the way and you're still going to you're still going to come and eat the cheese out of the palm of my hand. Yeah, and you know, he may not be Jesus, but he's certainly Job in that regard where he's being tested. Illusions, of- Michael. Exactly. Uh, if only he had more scenes with Michael to put on that voice. Yeah. But I think to your point, you know, he has been knocked down and been told Chumbawamba style to get back up again. But I think <laughs> what Locke learns here, which will become very valuable in those instances we just talked about, is he learned he can't do it alone. I think that he, at this point, is very independently minded. You know, we see even the be- in the beginning of the scene where Boone's trying to question him. He's like, no. I'm fine. Even when he falls down, Boone says, let me help you up. And Locke refuses. And I wonder if in that confessional, Locke realizes like, okay, 
my faith is being tested. And maybe part of the testing of that faith is to convince somebody else of that faith as well, to get someone to assist you, because I am only one man, and we need a whole tribe to be able to help the island. And so he realizes, you know, convincing Boone to help, he'll convince several people to help him with the hatch of it all, even though, like you said, that's against the island. It feels like maybe Locke's uh, recruiting purposes become almost enlarged after all this stuff with Boone, because he realizes that, you know, no man is an island, quite literally. Yeah. All right, so we go to the flashback. We've already talked about it. Cooper and Locke shooting birds. Except Locke, uh, <laughs> Locke shoots birds. Cooper is wearing a really interesting hunting beret. <laughs> yeah. He looks like a family friend of mine <laughs> in this moment. Imagine imagine Cooper with the beret, and that is the man that has been at, my, uh, at the Wiggler family Thanksgiving and Christmas parties uh, for every single year that I have been alive. Please tell uh, me he's, he wears the beret every time. He wears the bray almost every single time. The bray, incredible. The bray is absolutely iconic. I love that. I bet you Anthony Cooper was the one that taught Locke about trebuchet. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, this guy I'm talking about would totally be uh, would totally. He knows all about trebuchets. I bet. <laughs> Got a real. Did you, are you saying that you met a hybrid John Locke, Anthony Cooper in your life? <laughs> yeah, he kind of. Stay far away from him, Josh. <laughs> My wife would be happy if I did. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> On the island, Boone's gonna tell uh tell Locke who like collapsed into a heap. He's like gonna tell he's gonna tell Locke about the Teresa story. He's exhausted now too, right? Because he's like yeah. taking on the physical weight of Locke at this point. Uh, I, ca- I cannot help. carry the ring, Mister Locke, but yeah. I can carry you. Yeah, I carry. Share the load. <laughs> uh, so he unloads the Teresa story. Uh, she was his nanny when he was a kid. His mom wasn't around much. Uh, and he kept like intercoming her on his bedroom to like come upstairs, bring me food, bring me things. He was six years old, uh, and one day she took a bad step, broke her neck, uh, and then she came back in the form of a turtle and stayed with him for fifteen <laughs> yeah, years. Stayed fifteen years. Uh, Locke starts laughing in Boone's face, and Boone grabs him by the scruff of his shirt. Says, what the hell's so funny? Uh, well, look behind you. It's the plane. The plane. Ooh, hello, Beechcraft. Yeah, so here's the Beechcraft. Uh, I and... was, uh, so Beechcraft, I'm very confused by the spelling. Because you would think, and I believe the subtitles on Hulu said B-E-A-C-H-C-R-A-F-T. But I'm pretty sure it's B-E-E-C-H-C-R-E-A-F-T. Which made me feel initially when I was first reading about it all the way back in the, in the heyday when this was airing, that it was filled with bees. Or had a connection to the bees in some way, shape, or form? Well, it does have a connection to the bees. It's filled with heroin, which is Charlie's favorite thing. That's true. Uh, he hates bees, but he loves what's in the bees' craft. Yeah. So it's a Catch-22, which is a great episode from Season 3. Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, Locke, uh, Boone just sort of like sets down uh, Locke in the, in the grove here as they sort of investigate it. I do wonder, you know, Locke is going to have this mentality later on of, you know, Boone was a sacrifice the island demanded. I also wonder if also part of this crisis of faith is almost a corollary that maybe in the grand scheme of things, Locke feels that the island took away his legs at that moment so that Boone was the one specifically to climb into the beachcraft. And that's why he feels he was a sacrifice. You know, that there was like a series of events that lined up. Otherwise, Locke would have easily been the one to do it but because he physically couldn't. It was Boone, and that's why he's so adamant that, yes, the island wanted him to go up there. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's also like that's a justification, right? Because like to oh, yeah. look at to look at too deeply in the eye, you'd have to look at the reality of I sent that boy to his death. Um, but Locke is not just a gamer, uh, Mike. He's the general, right? Or the mm-hmm. colonel. Uh, the colonel. He's the colonel. And, yeah, and, and Colonel Kurtz as well. You know, and so he is somebody who he's, he makes a military decision here. And he, he sends the boy off to fight his war, and the boy doesn't come back. Yeah, though we'll, we'll also talk about, you know, uh, what Boone's initial mission is and how something or someone may distract Boone and ultimately lead to his death. But yeah, Locke's a man of preposition here when he says uh, it's not what's important is that we found it, but what's important is what's inside yeah. of it. And we'll find out very soon what's inside of it. Uh, so we go to a flashback. Uh, it's it's what we heard at the top of the podcast. Locke I, and I will, Cooper. This scene is super interesting. Thanks yeah. to Jim Fells. Uh, random, you know, themes from the latter half of the series pop up, apparently in the first season. The freighter theme plays in the underscore of that scene we played in the opening. Oh, whoa. Yeah, I, I'm assuming there's no, like, actual connection. I think it's just Michael Giacchino wanting to repurpose a piece of music he already wrote. But yeah. We're going to hear that about three seasons later as, like, a main motif. That's incredible. Very weird. Unless it means that Anthony Cooper owned the freighter. Uh, he and Widmore were in cahoots. What if they're the same person? Oh, cahoots. Uh, so they're in bed. They're getting ready. Uh, it's too late to change, uh, your mind for John Locke because they already shaved his back. Uh... I don't know what they. I don't think they'd have to shave my back in this type of surgery. Yeah, I was gonna say. And I also think Locke. I, I'm trying to remember the number of times we saw him shirtless. He doesn't seem like a very hairy man in general. Mm-hmm. Though again, he had a lot of hair on his head. Maybe he had much more on his oh, body yeah, back in those he days. Just, he lost it all everywhere. Uh, so Cooper's very thankful. I'm so thankful for you, John. You're the best. And John's like, oh, yeah, this is meant to be. And Cooper says, see you on the other side, son. Wah. About that, this will be the final time we see him in this episode. <laughs> yeah, oh, and it's so I love it though that like that's a promise, but it also pays off in the long run as well. Where he'll see Cooper, you know, a couple more times, but the next time they'll really encounter one another is on the island when Cooper thinks that they're in hell. So from that perspective, he really does think that he's seeing him on the other side. Yeah. All right, so Jackson go to Sawyer. Uh, Sawyer has another great line. If you're looking for a stool sample, you can forget it. Uh, you might want to like, go to Hurley for that one. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't give him like a, more of like a, an eat shit joke, but I think that it works. Uh, but Jack says you've got hyperopia. It's hyperopia. And, yeah, Sawyer, uh, I love that. Oh. Again, maybe a little bit of a Jack, uh, Jack being a dick of him not outright saying you're farsighted, him making him think for a legitimate couple seconds that he has some sort of like maybe terminal disease called hyperopia. Uh, yeah. Hyperopia. That's, uh, uh, what is that? You're farsighted. Farsighted? Yeah, he needs glasses. It could develop later in life when you add strain to the eyes, like with reading. Um, so I know that this was the this was the retcon for why Sawyer missed the Marshall's heart. Uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was a retcon. Like I wonder how much this was in the process, but it certainly does explain at least why he was able to shoot the polar bear from a, a good number of feet away, but was unable to shoot the Marshall at a basically point blank. Yeah, but but Jack is saying that it develops late in life when you add strain to the eyes, like when you're reading. And Sawyer has been voraciously reading here 
on the island. Was he voraciously reading by the time that he shot the marshal? Was it like the way that Locke got his uh, his legs restored? The smoke monster was like, I want to humble Sawyer by making him need glasses. <laughs> Could you imagine like the walkabout scene of Sawyer waking up and like the distance gets blurry? <laughs> or no, no, the close up gets blurry. Like he looks yeah. at his hands and they get yeah. blurry, but then yeah. everything else far away looks good. Good idea. Good idea. Uh, really fun as he's trying all these glasses on. Little uh, macabre as well, because you imagine they belong to dead people. These yeah, but glasses uh, for sure. But it's it's a fun little like high Saeed by Saeed cameo as he solders together. Uh, um, it's amazing. I don't want to yada yada this at all because it is Saeed's only scene of the episode. He's making these glasses. There's a glasses forging montage that occurs <laughs> here, and it is it is uh to to borrow a phrase from uh from Survivor Cambodia. This is Survivor MacGyver, right? Like this is this is Saeed amazing. Uh, the the fact that <laughs> and, he and, he had, and he has actually a similar length of hair as well. He like, could he could, he could he, totally rock the man bun. Oh yeah, if if this was lost 2019 instead of 2004, like forget it. He already have it down. Immunity beast Saeed Jara is just put. <laughs> Putting these glasses together. Ooh, and does like this, this make Shannon Sierra Don Thomas? <laughs> yes, absolutely, a hundred percent. Barrel racer. Uh, she's he's he's putting this stuff together, and it's just it's the music underneath it. It's wonderful. Said is wonderful in this moment, and you know who else is absolutely wonderful in this moment? Hurley, uh, because <laughs> Sawyer gets the glasses, he puts them on. Uh, he's reading the paper that says better or worse, har har, very funny. And then Hurley walks by and sees Sawyer, who's got like, uh, the, this, this pair of glasses that's like part, like, uh, like wide black lens, like Weezer glasses. And the other part is like my late Aunt Claire's glasses. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's, it's, odd. It's basically mismatch. like if you've ever seen anyone uh, decorate half of themselves vertically as like a man and half of them as a woman, and they keep flipping between <laughs> right. them. That's essentially what Sawyer's wearing. Yeah, he's like Two Face. Oh uh, my goodness! If he only had a coin to flip, or uh, more accurately, according to Hurley, dude, looks like someone steamrolled Harry Potter. Woof, uh, Mike! I cannot stop laughing at that anytime I watch that scene. It's just like. It's boom headshot right like it's like with one line hurley just assassinates sawyer in this episode or, it yeah. is excellent and it is it's so fun to see sawyer lose at the hands of a joke at the hands of an insult uh so hurley already riding high from from the battery brigade uh you know ah it's it's so good. Questionable taste in music, obviously, with uh, Hugo Hurley Reyes. Uh, but when it yeah, comes when to, he got tricked by Anthony Cooper's no, apparent number one hit. Yeah, but when it comes to rocking a zinger like that, Hurley just takes Sawyer straight to Chinatown. And it's the yeah, best. and I think unfortunately Sawyer's perceived badass persona has unfortunately been steamrolled as well. Now that he needs to wear these glasses, but at the end of the day, it helps. But your involvement with Hurley actually begs the question. Do we think this was part of the numbers curse that Hurley Sawyer happened to be around Hurley and all of a sudden he started becoming far <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely Hurley's fault. Let's blame it on Hurley for sure. Uh yeah, but this is the the lightest part of the episode, and unfortunately it's about to end. Yeah, now it's about to get real dark uh moving forward. So we go back to the beachcraft. Boone goes up like these very tall vines to get there. This is obviously an area we're gonna visit a lot 
uh, along the way. Yeah, this is a scene and a night we are going to visit many, 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 many. It's times. a scene and a night that we're going to visit many, many times. It's just a, it's just a location that we're going to keep coming back to because the Pearl Station is right at their feet. They have no idea at this time, uh, but we'll find that out next season. And Nikki and Paola will be here, uh, so we'll we'll be we'll be dropping in on on this spot for a good little while. And Boone's going to be dropping right on it in short order. Uh, he gets on the plane. He finds some maps. The plane is starting to shift, uh, but Boone persists. Uh, he finds, I think, Yemi's corpse on the yeah. on the plane. Because I'm pretty sure that when all this happened, uh, like the Yemi was dead because he got shot, and then the guy hopped in the plane and kicked Echo off. So it would make sense that this guy parachuted out and landed in the tree, and Yemi was left on the plane already dead. It, do you think I have to award Yemi an LVP point in this episode because we see his dead body? But if I did that, then I'd have to award it to the uh, the other to guy. Gordy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think I can. I don't. I don't think that. I think you'll have to forgive me if I don't. Uh, no, I, let's you know. Let's person. introduce Echo first before we yeah. start giving his sure, family sure, sure. and close co- confidants LVP. Although I'll, I'll say, I think uh, some some unseen characters in this episode mm. maybe maybe scoring points in both directions in this episode to to spoil my takes. Um, Locke's gonna be shouting for Boone because the plane is like you know all wobbly and he's like freaking out. Like, is everything okay, Boone? Yeah. What do you see? Yeah, and he does, you know, try to get up and, you know, while Boone sort of like slip sliding around. So it does appear that, again, he has concern for him. Yeah, uh, but what's the what's the what's the cost benefit analysis? Like, what's the balance here for Locke in terms of his genuine concern for Boone and his frustration over the fact that he's not there, that he Mm. can't he can't see the thing that he he can't micromanage Boone from on the ground. So then everything goes down, uh, literally. Uh, And. We'll just listen into that. <laughs> Boone, what do you see? Boone! Want to know what's in your damn plane, Locke? Here's your sign. The drug smugglers, Locke. Heroin! That's all that's in here! I don't understand. I don't understand. Survivors of the crash of Oceanus Boom, 15, get out! 15, please copy. Oh, 
So a very climactic scene. But the first thing I need to mention is I cannot listen to Boone say, here's your sign without thinking about Bill Engvall from the Blue Collar <laughs> Comedy Tour. And it just, ma- no, I wouldn't say it ruins the scene for me, but it definitely takes me out of it for a hot second. Now, now see, for me, what I can't hear uh, without thinking of something else is the the Virgin Mary smashing on the ground and not think about all the times that things smashed to in Wet Hot American Wet Hot Summer. American Summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was I was actually thinking about it. I was like, do they play the pot smashing sound effect? Luckily yeah. they didn't, but that's I yeah. definitely thought of that too. Yeah, so. yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind there. And then the next thing that comes to mind is Oh, Boon! Oh, oh no! Boy. So yeah, this there's so many interesting things here, and again, like there is a deliberate choice made by Boone here, and. I really do think, had John Locke been able to go up there, he's not going back for that radio. We know at this point that Locke is somebody who cares first and foremost about, like, what's good for the island. You know, he purposely knocked out Saeed to not have the transceiver work. But Boone is not in the same mentality as Locke. He still is thinking about, you know, he sees a chance of possibly getting off the island and decides to radio. I really do feel like... If Locke had been there at the time, you know, he sees the Virgin Mary statue, says, I doesn't, I don't get it. But the minute that plane starts creaking, even though he sees that radio, that's not a concern to him. He's getting out of there. And so one of the things that ultimately kills Boone is the fact that, you know, he saw something that is was not something that in John Locke's eyes uh, important. And that leads to the plane taking a nosedive. Yeah, well, Boone spends so much time with John Locke and being his attack dog, as as Michael describes him back in special, um, that he's really drinking the Kool-Aid or at least uh, rubbing that paste all over himself. <laughs> Ooh, Kool-Aid um, paste. Is that, is that like the powder <laughs> that you mix in? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's really in on, uh, on, on the John Locke cult uh, for so much of the final stretch of, of his time here. And the first, uh, you know, era of Boone is really defined by him wanting to be a Jack type um, and failing every time he like tries to be a hero uh, when he goes out to, when he tries to save Rose, but he's doing CPR badly and he comes back with the pen too late and he's like sent on uh, like a, a helpless fetch quest in order to just like be like removed from the scene. Uh, the fact that he can't save Joanna, uh, the fact that he tries mm. to steal the gun on the, on the radio, uh, on the, on the, on the radio expedition in the pilot uh, in, or in, in Tabula Rasa when he, when he goes and does that, um, the fact that he steals the watch, um you know just there's there's been a lot of party fouls on boone carlisle's part every time he's tried to act like a leader and here here he's boone you know like this is a guy who like got into the plane because he was he was doing something that he this man who was like teaching him about belief and crazy coincidences uh, you know, he, he's, he's there because of, of that. Like, that's one leg that gets him there. And then the other leg is his Jack tendency of mm. this is a moment where I can help everybody potentially. I got to be a hero right now. Uh, I know I'm in like a scary situation where this plane keeps rocking, but that's a radio and it's functional. I have to try. I'm oh, right I, l- here. I love that idea that like in that moment, the Jack overpowers the lock. In yeah. His mind. And, and I think that that follows him to his grave, you know, uh, in, in everything that we're going to get into and do no harm. Uh, Boone's going to sell out lock first of all, yeah. right? Like he's going to sell lock down the river. Uh, and he's going to have a very practical conversation with Jack where he's like, stop doing what you're doing. 
stop like trying to like cut my leg off and you know giving me all of your blood uh these people are gonna need you and look at me man i'm dead just let me go and do me a favor and tell shannon (laughs) flatline you know like so he the way that he leaves the show is he he leaves as the person he always hoped he was i think um and it's you know it's sad because in in a way who he always was was this was this guy who who tried really hard and often failed but even in the face of that sort of in the same way as Locke, right like this is a guy who always tries and fails but he keeps trying again so in that way he sort of has that lock tendency but that's a very jack characteristic too so i think that the way that boone ends up going here and the fact that he is um you know he crashes in this moment and that's going to lead to everything that goes down and do no harm um, it just feels very true to the character, and I, yeah. and I, and I, and I like that, and I think that it's very easy to pick on Boone and to kind of noogie that character. Hey, he because, runs a business, Josh. You know, he's a very important person, and all of that stuff. And is he is he in like the elite class of lost characters? No, of course not, absolutely not. Um, but he's the first person we lose of the main yeah, cast, and, that, and that's significant to the point where you know in Exodus. There are still echoes of it. I would even say into season two, even if there's hatch craziness, there's still echoes of it. But I I really like that point that I think this episode across the board is enigmatic of who Boone Carlyle was as a character between his his ability and want to help people and, uh, you know, his ability to make split second decisions that might not pay off well for him. But, Josh, we have to talk about that radio yeah, that was something that got so many people's fingers uh, a tittering away at their keyboard and minds a spinning for seasons to come. Yeah, uh, and there's there's a couple of different reads on it. It's it, it is the voice saying we're the survivors of uh, Oceanic uh, Flight Eight One Five, or there were, there no, were no survivors. No, yeah. yeah, so it's it's it, there's still some debate about about that until we get to the Bernard scene in season two. And I'm actually uh, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, the voice on the radio. Is not Sam Anderson because I don't no, think they had cast Bernard. Not. I believe, not. and correct me if I'm wrong here, if, if they just had yeah. it in Summerhalder, which would have, which also tripped people out, right? Because it's like if it's Boone talking back to himself, does that mean that we're dealing with like alternate dimensions here? Why is it Boone? Why is Boone talking with Boone? Is something going to happen that produces two Boons? So they go to Byung Han's cloning facility. Double Boone, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, they should have had a spare Boone considering what's going to happen to the first one. Yeah, but I mean that would have been crazy if like the next thing that Lost introduced was doubles you know well listen we're going I, I, full hero to, season ten, two not to bring tennis back into the to the mix mike uh to, to, oh to, now boom <laughs> won't be able to hit any more winners no more winners it's just losers here for poor boone carlisle uh, uh but yeah man if bernard just hadn't picked up that damn radio boone yeah damn arrow station that, that yeah. was the arrow straight to boone's heart there's well, an yeah, argument so- there's an argument that bernard gets boone killed yeah does he ever apologize about it probably not because he doesn't get to see shannon Except when she dies. <laughs> That's true. They're more so like rumors. Like, yeah. oh, a friend of a friend, you know, that yeah. you don't really hear about. But yeah, so it's a pretty crazy set piece. This plane lands on its nose and then flips upside down. Uh, and, you know, Locke, and I don't know whether this is him getting his faith back in that moment or like the mom strength of it all, just is able to not only walk over to Boone pull him out and just like take his whole dead weight and haul it on his body as he makes way for camp. Yeah. Boone looks rough. Like we'll see just how rough he looks. It's not good. It's no, bad. not good. Blood is everywhere, both Blood inside everywhere. and outside. 
blood is everywhere. So Locke's going to pick him up, take him out. Uh, we obviously should also note uh, heroin's back. Heroin's back. <laughs> yeah, uh, Virgin Mary. Look, uh, John Locke was not born by Immaculate Conception, but apparently Charlie's addiction will make uh, will be bur- you know, rebirthed on the island. <laughs> So many, uh, so many things happening in that scene that, like, that was that was like one of those things where, like, you're like, I think we should probably also talk about the fact that there's heroin on the island again. You know, like it's almost like an afterthought, but obviously that was a big deal. And you're like, oh, Charlie, no, this is gonna be bad. For yeah, you. that was one of those like Chekhov's guns where you know the scene in Exodus of them going by the beachcraft was inevitable that a character like Charlie would run into that just because it's his one vice, and that one vice happens to be on the one place he's stranded. His other vice is fat shaming Hurley. Uh, but the other thing, what I don't think now is the time to do it. But eventually, I think we got to do like, uh, uh, was the juice worth the squeeze in bringing heroin back into the show? Uh, mm. You know, like we get, we get, we get some, we get Echo out of it. You know, it plays a big role in, um, you know, what goes on with Libby and the hatch, and they need to, you know, to to uh, soothe her pain. Um, but it also gives us Charlie's whole like I know. season two storyline, which is whatever. No, my my when I'm walking into season two with the mentality of not to spoil my thoughts from like uh, two months from now when we talk about this and preview season two is that you know with the induction of the hatch, Loss was trying to bring more elements from the modern world back in to see. Okay, we've seen these people stripped down to almost their primal, more naturalistic personas. What happens when we introduce things like a stockpile of guns? and more things from our real world. And I wonder if heroin sort of serves that purpose in a manner of speaking that, yes, it really just takes Charlie's trajectory and kind of puts it in the toilet for a little bit. But I feel like it's a it's one of those symbols of, okay, you thought the island was going to be your time away to sort of start your new life. Here comes elements from your old life coming back. How are you going to handle that? So Locke's going to pick up Boone. Uh, he's going to stalk off. Back at the caves, Kate's going to go to Jack. Uh, and uh, wants to know, do you know about the farsightedness before or after you asked about his latest outbreak? He says, I'd, a- I'd answer, but doctor-patient confidentiality. Oh, very smooth. <laughs> but he's fine letting her sit there. I know. Uh, but she thanks him, uh, says it was probably the last thing you wanted to do, and then Jack says, I didn't do it for him. Kate's did like, I, what? Did I, did I convey that properly? Yeah. I didn't do it for him. Yeah, the the whole like uh, Jack Kate stuff. I mean, we had sort of the just giving us- her the eyes. It's like Jack. Okay, so when he when you said that when you were checking me out, I would know it. I now know it because you're looking at me and saying I didn't do it for him. Yeah, and it's uh, not great timing at the very next episode is when we're going to see his marriage. Yeah, you know, <laughs> just shows that like yeah, he's a, he's a easy to follow someone around with puppy dog eyes. Oh, Jack. Uh, but here comes Locke. Jack, help! Uh, he's got Boone. Boone! He's got Boone on his back. There was an accident. Boone fell off a cliff where, while we were hunting. That's what happened. Yeah, he Lock- pulled a full Wily e. Coyote, apparently. Lock in full panic mode. This is a bad choice. And uh, I think it's something we'll dig into deeper next week. And so I don't think we should spend tons of time on it right now. Um, but this is the beginning of the breakup for Jack and John. Uh, the fact that Locke makes this choice to lie about what happened to Boone, and not is... only that, and but run, yeah, he's, and he's run. not necessarily doing a hit and run, but he's essentially like he dips, drop, he he's, dips, he's, he's dropping the body uh, that OD'd on the on the in front of the hospital, and then driving and away. Ghosts, you know? yeah, he just gets out of there, and and like Jack's like shouting for him at the end, uh, Locke, 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 and he's gone. 
um, which is going to bring us to the final movement of the episode. And it starts with a flashback and Locke's waking up in the hospital. Cooper's gone. Uh, and the nurse thinks that what Locke did was so kind. It was so brave. Which, like, by the way, uh, we found another like Mrs. Perrineau connective actress here. The nurse who is talking with Locke right now is a nurse that's going to talk with Jack in Man of Science, Man of Faith. Oh, cool. That's so awesome. I don't know if this is St. Sebastian where all this is taking place. Uh, we know that Emily Locke stayed in Santa Rosa, so there is some, maybe they sort of is, there's some some connective tissue in terms of the area. But yeah, that's, that's sort of, I don't know if she changed hospitals shortly after that, but it ends up being a nurse who's uh, involved with two of our characters here. Two characters that, as you say, are about to come to blows in a couple of episodes. Yeah, so this nurse is going to tell uh, Locke that, that she didn't know he was your father, but he's checked out. He went back home. He's under private care. And he didn't leave a message. Uh, and Locke's like, that doesn't make any sense. And speaking of Emily Locke, we are going to see Swoosie Kurtz as Emily Locke for the final time uh, in all of Lost, believe it or not, in this scene. Um, And I think we should just play the audio in full. I know it's probably going to be fairly long, um, but this is one of the best endings of the entire show. Uh, So let's let's check it out. It was his idea. Sorry, John. What are you doing here? I needed some money. He's always been good that way. Your father's always been generous. You told me I didn't have a father. Well, he said that was the only way you would give it to him. It had to be your idea. He told me where to find you. He, he asked me to go see you. I wanted to see you. This can't be happening. This this is a misunderstanding. This this can't happen to me. You wouldn't do this to me. He wouldn't do this to me. not seeing guests. I'm not a guest. I'm sorry, John. Eddie, open the gate. I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to move your car. Move your car.
this is the first time I cry on the mic during Lost Lives. Uh, uh. Just just listening to that. I was wondering if just the audio, how it would make me feel. And what broke me this time, and usually what breaks me, because this is a scene that often really gets me emotional, is uh, when Locke says he wouldn't do this to me. And he, like, stammers it out yeah. the second time just because, God, it's so it's so pitiful. It's and so it's, sad. And it's, like, it breaks your heart how much love and faith he put in this man and how much this guy just trampled all over it. Uh, and I just, I love the pairing of these scenes so much. Between, obviously, the line, uh, you know... Uh, you know, I did everything for you. Why did you do this to me? Obviously, it can pertain to both situations. The fact that in both situations, Locke has a white shirt that has blood on it, in some perspective. Like, I wonder how much of this was like a a, a triggering memory for him on the island. But Terry, oh goddamn Quinn! <laughs> I believe that's his first name. Yeah, it's just name. it's just like it's he puts in such a, a masterclass here. He goes through such a huge spectrum of disbelief and pain both physical and emotional and fury and finally turning to sobbing over the course of like a two and a half minute sequence and then this moment of joy and hope within this infinitesimal or infinite realm of darkness that has now surrounded Locke literally in the jungle a small light emerges and it's what he needs to keep going and Maybe he had that in his real life as well, considering he hit a huge low w- with what happened to him. But such a freaking powerful story and such a powerful ending where it's the perfect merging of flashbacks and on-island stuff with emotional resonance to experiences that are happening, you know, in both locations with an ending that also, you know, is oddly uplifting, but also raises so much, so many questions yeah. right down to is the light a signal from the island or does it mean that someone's in there? Granted, it's the ladder, but you could also argue... If well, there is no ladder. The ladder's been destroyed. Exactly. But you could also argue if, you know, if the island is sort of a mechanism, it could be the former. If you believe in this idea of fate, that th- these two guys had planned to see each other that evening, that the island did arrange for Locke to receive this bright light in a moment of darkness to tell him to keep going. And... You know, I, I don't want. I feel like lately it's been like, oh, let me connect this to my own mental health. But you know, it's it's a weird connection to depression. But I kind of see it at the end of this episode, and I think that's why it's really, uh, it's it's really hit me so hard uh, recently because you're you're someone who can who at times can feel like you're you're pounding on a hatch, being like, why why do I feel these what this way? Why are these things happening to me? Am I a terrible person? Have I made the wrong decisions? And you find your light where you want to, but that light tells you that what you're working towards does have a purpose. And no matter the mistakes that you made, you got to get up and you got to keep walking. One of the things that I that I love about the scene so much, other than everything that you've already outlined, uh, just like the the line read of so why did you do this uh, to me? Yeah, like, it's, it's like it sounds a little goofy, but like he is screaming no, like, at the top of his lungs. Li- it's like lyrical. It's like a it's like a this this unholy song. You know, it's like it, it's like deep from like 
the the bowels of a hell band, you know, because he's like still he's still there. Are they are they uh, are they opening up for for Crash the Stomp Band on the island? Yeah, and Phil's the drummer. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's terrible, uh, but it has like sort of this like this horrible melodic quality to it. So I I just I love that performance so much, and I and I love this idea that uh, I think is very relatable. Uh, certainly to me, and I imagine to just about anybody who's alive, unless you're, you're a sociopath. <laughs> so, uh, sorry if there are any dead people listening to us right now. Uh, but that that idea of like when you have when you have done something definitely wrong, you know, like when you did something that is like objectively you 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 were in the wrong, you you did wrong, um, and your reaction is to like run away and scream to the heavens about it. Whether that's like literally screaming or it's just like fully internally just being like, why is this happening? How could this possibly happen? This is unreal. This doesn't feel real. Uh, You know, in the way that Locke says that that dream he had was the most real thing he's ever experienced, this must be one of the most surreal things he's ever experienced, where this just doesn't feel like this is possible. How could this be happening right now? Uh, And it could be something childish. Like, uh, I had a friend when I was a kid who, like, had, like, a cool X-Men card, and he refused to trade it with me, and I screamed at him and i ran away did you scream how could you do this to me i like scream i I, like screamed at him and reamed him out and like i was like uh i was like five years old i like ran into his backyard into his woods and probably thought i was very lost i think his parents could probably just like see me through the window the whole thing (laughs) and i was was just like how could this be happening because i felt so embarrassed and i felt so shamed uh i felt like i felt like such shame about how i was acting like such an idiot but also like so mad at the universe for putting me in this position and then there are like the much like more serious versions of that feeling um you know that we don't need to spend forever talking about but uh i think that everybody feels that like you did something whether it was like you did something embarrassing uh where you like you put your foot in your mouth in a really severe way and then you like you walked away from it very very fast to like pretend like it never happened but like you're Mm. just like howling inside or you're howling outside like it's just one of the reasons why i think this is remembered as one of the the great endings of lost which again this is a damon and carlton joint so on their first uh co-byline they really knock it out of the park here uh i think that it's 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 powerful because it's such a good performance and giacchino is doing his thing in such a uh, profound way i love bringing back the walkabout music yeah it's because great. it's, it's like, an amazing reminder to us of like like the pi says to Locke, there this is not going to be a happy ending and right. we should remember that even though it seems like he's building a good relationship with his dad, this was bound to happen. Just like he was bound to get his destiny denied to him in Australia. And I love just bringing back the theme. Because not only is it swelling and powerful, but it really, it's all about echoes. And not the person that Locke's going to meet down the line. Uh, what is also so really just deep about this scene as well in this final moment is that it's almost tragic in that... This seems to be a perpetuating cycle from Locke, right? That he invests his faith in something, that faith gets challenged, perhaps to the detriment of other people or his own well-being, and then he finds some sort of sign and then buys back into it again. And granted, you know, the like you said, the, you know, his faith at the island will ultimately, uh, I guess, be rewarded in some way, shape, or form. But at the same time, he's still going to have it be tested so many, many, many more times that it's just going to 
absolutely beat him up, both physically and emotionally. And so, well, it is a little well it's beautiful you know to watch this light turn on and to have Locke's, uh you know hope and faith restored in that moment it's also has a little bit of like a bittersweetness to it knowing that there's a very good chance that he's going to hurt more people in the process as he continues to uh do things for the sake of the island it just feels very real yeah it's it's so raw and i think that that's the thing i think like you could you could pick apart like all of the different reasons why this works so well the fact that he's covered in Boone's blood, uh, the fact that like his hair, he's like eating his hair in the car, you know, uh, that the fact that when he gets out of the car to go to Eddie and say, Eddie, open the gate. Eddie is so sad that he can't. And yeah. Eddie's probably getting fired in a few days anyway. Right. Because Cooper's going to ditch town. Right. Uh, but Locke's Locke's shirt there is stained with blood because he's got the kidney freshly removed. And he should not be out of the hospital. He certainly shouldn't be driving a car. Yeah, I'm very surprised that nurse and all the people just let him <laughs> out. Uh, uh, it's it's just very raw. It is so raw. And John Locke is just raw. And Terry O'Quinn is raw. And it is great. And it's great. And this is one of those moments where like, the rest of the episode is obviously very, very, very good, too. But this is one of those instances where an ending can be so good. Just like to to totally spoil where I'll go with the 4.2 stars. Like this is an episode that probably would be like a 4.0 for me. And then the ending is so good that it's a 4.2. Yeah. That it's instantly a perfect episode of Lost. Well, yeah. And that's also, you know, I think it's purposely done to leave the viewers sort of like pontificating on things while also looking forward to the next episode, but also sort of this is an ending that I feel like really we talked about this with uh, Ooh in translation as well does a good job of sort of summing up the series of events that occurred. You know, it's a, just a great representation of Locke's entire journey throughout this episode and where he's going to go with things. Uh, that it just, it works so well as like a recap of what we just watched and a sign of where, a sign of the shape of things to come as they were. And I agree. I mean, this this is like just an incredible three and a half minutes of television in general. It, it takes you, it, even if you don't know the circumstances, it just emotionally compels you. And every single piece of this sequence, I think, is masterfully done. Okay, well, let's move on to the feedback. Let's get into the others section here. Um, we'll start with some behind the scenes from the great Ben behind the curtain. Uh, and other number one, Mike, uh, we talked about how we were going to revisit the Beechcraft a few times uh, over the course of the series. We're actually going to revisit this day uh, a few times. It's, over the it's like a of the mini series. Groundhog Day within Lost. Uh, day forty-one. This is, is when this is taking place. Day forty-one is when Boone falls out of the plane. Uh, day forty-one on the island. It's the day that Boone falls from the Beechcraft, and it appears in six different episodes and even a Mobisode. Uh, the most appearances for any day other than the day before and the day of the crash of Oceanic 815. It's going to appear here. It's going to be in Do No Harm. It's going to be in the Tailies flashback and the other 48 days when we get that from Bernard's uh, perspective. We're going to get Desmond's flashback and Live Together Die Alone. And then it appears in Season 5 in Jughead and The Little Prince. 
Uh, and then there's a Mobisode <laughs> where Jin has a temper tantrum on the golf course. Wait, that uh, is not, what, uh, what does that have to do with the, with the sight of the Beechcraft? Or is it just that he happened to have a temper tantrum on that on day? day? On day 41. Yeah. Wow. That's how, the, how did he fit that in between like working hard on the raft and then helping Claire give birth? You know what? I bet that like Jacob was watching that and he's like, all right, Quan's got to be a candidate. Uh, and it's day 41. I'm going to make him candidate number 41. Oh, shit. 41's already taken. Okay, 42. <laughs> But so you know Jin, what? Uh, the 42. <laughs> and I'll write Quan just so I remember it and that I know specifically, and everyone who sees this list will know specifically that it's Jin Quan and not Sun Quan. Uh, all right. So, other number two, we actually already cleared this. Uh, this is so according to Carlton Cuse on the audio commentary for I Do, which is the Kate flashback in the beginning of season the, three. Yeah, the Nathan Fillion episode. Nathan Fillion shows up. Uh, that yes, the the farsightedness was indeed conceived as a retcon to explain why Sawyer would have missed when shooting the marshal. Um, but that doesn't really work. I don't know. Whatever, it's fine. It, I'm glad that it happened because the glasses are hilarious. Yeah, and, that, and then had that not happened, we would not have gotten the infamous meme where Sawyer sees the Oceanic Six or half of them come back, and he takes off his glasses in dramatic surprise. All right, let's uh, let's get into proper feedback for this episode. Uh, other number three, we had a couple of people asking us uh, to weigh in on whether or not the accident was Locke's fault, what happens to, to Boone. Um, and we've got an argument for and against. Uh, the argument against uh, comes from Jordan from Wisconsin. Uh, Jordan writes, in all the best daddies, Locke called the Star Trek captain a piss poor captain by letting the red shirts die. My question for you is whether Locke was being a piss poor captain in this episode, because my opinion is no. Locke, with his faith in the island, successfully found the plane. He did tell Boone to climb up to the plane, which was probably not wise, but Boone didn't seem to mind. It was Boone's own curiosity that led him to move to the front of the plane. Locke yelled at him to get out, but he didn't get out when he probably should have. If anything, Locke probably shouldn't have left after delivering Boone to Jack, but that probably wouldn't have mattered anyway. Uh, Stefan Johnson thinks that this is Locke's fault. Stefan writes, Locke is the one who sent him up to the plane, possibly knowing it would fall. But Boone didn't try to get out. Personally, I blame Locke. Boone was trying to get help. And if he's tried to get out the plane, it wouldn't have fallen anyways. Um, so who do you side with here, Mike? Uh, Jordan or Stefan? Is Boone's accident Locke's fault or not? My thinking on it is Locke led the Boone horse to water but he didn't make him drink, if that makes sense. And that it does. Locke has laid this entire track, convincing him how important this hatch is. We did see a couple times that I think Boone was questioning that, but Boone, as we talked about, decides to make a couple of decisions to purposely follow Jock, even if uh, Jock, Locke, even <laughs> if... purple this, hair. Yeah, purple it, flashback hair. I mean, listen, maybe he is a Jock if he, uh, if he knows that the... Uh, if he knows where the footballs are. Like, he's clearly a Jock. Uh, but... I think that once they actually get to the Beechcraft, as we spoke about, there are several decisions that are made by Boone that I don't think Locke was necessarily compelling him to do. And I think that, you know, what Jack is really going to take umbrage with uh, in the beginning of The Greater Good is the fact that Locke really kept this all a secret. Yes, that's where Locke's most at fault to me. Yeah, as well. I, I, I think so. Like, and I don't want to rob Boone of the agency of being a hero uh, as Locke is going to say, Locke's going to show up at the funeral and say he was a hero. He was trying to save us. Uh, he died trying to save us. He's a hero. Uh, and that's all true. All of that's true. Uh, so the accident isn't Locke's fault. Locke is actively saying, Boone, get out of there. And Boone doesn't get out of there because Boone thinks that he's got a shot to save everybody. And so he goes for it. But Locke is absolutely at fault for just like 
bailing <laughs> like yeah. a hard hard bail uh and he's, and he's and he's at fault as well for keeping purposely making boone you know obscure what they've been doing out there for some time we spoke about it you know over the course of these past number of podcasts and he keeps sl- trying to hide it even yeah. when he shows back up yeah the sliding doors of it all of like had someone else you know found out about the hatch and Locke's secret is revealed, how much does that trajectory change? And yeah, it's because Locke has tried to keep so many things under lock and key that I think one of the reasons why Jack goes after him is because that's sort of the boiling point with him of, okay, I'm trying to be the leader here, and someone has kept such a big secret from me that it ended up, you know, with the life of one of our survivors being extinguished, and that's the final straw. And the other thing, too, is if Locke had told somebody else about the hatch and, like, didn't keep this such a tight secret... Probably somebody else has the idea to be like, like if it's Jack's, like, well, have you walked around a bunch? Like, have you like made sure to see like, because if it's going down into the ground, maybe there's like another place in a hill. <laughs> yeah, where, maybe like, there's a could, door in a hill. Yes, yeah, so maybe there's a door. You keep looking at the hatch. Uh, all right, so I think we've covered that. Uh, Daniel Brennan asks us, why did John Locke lie? Uh, why did he lie about how Boone was injured? In Do No Harm, Jack explains that he could have treated Boone differently had he had accurate knowledge about the fall. It seems John could have told a story in which they stumbled upon a small plane while searching for boar, and Boone climbed up to it to find something to help the survivors. That story would have done nothing to spoil the secret of the hatch. Uh, it's a great question, Daniel. Uh, my answer to that would be because he panics. And because John Locke messes up a lot. He screws up a lot. John Locke is such a more satisfying character when you allow yourself to be cool with the idea that he does not have all the answers. And he's constantly messing up. He is failing all the time. He is not the savior that he thinks he is. No. Uh, He makes a decision that that makes him believe that, but they are are false platitudes. And I agree. It makes the storyline more interesting because... Uh, then you're able to sort of look at his haughtiness sometimes and be like, well, this is someone who might be compensating for the fact that he he is wrong with a a lot of his his knowledge here. And yeah, I I totally agree that I think it's something he just came up with spur of the moment. I mean, let's also remember that their big lie about, oh, no, we're actually hunting boar. Literally everyone saw through that lie. How about how everybody was talking about like, well, why aren't they coming back with boar? So I think... We talked about this last episode, but I think let's throw Locke in there with people like Charlie and Hurley of just not the best liars on the island, especially compared to people like Kate and Sawyer. Locke can, Locke can lie sometimes, but like this is a bad one. He's, he, yeah. he messes this up. Uh, Bob with two Bs asks us, Locke had a vision of a bloodied boon. Is that where he got the idea that the island demanded boon as a sacrifice? Um, I still kind of take it as like, that may- maybe, like, to some degree, but I think it's also, like, that kind of thing that you have to tell yourself when, like, you know you screwed up, where it's like, uh, it had to happen that way. If it hadn't happened that way, then we wouldn't be where we are right now. Like, yeah, like, know, it's, it's, it's the everything happens for a reason mentality. Yeah, uh, yeah. I also would love to do, like, a side-by-side comparison as to how Boone looks post-crash and how he looks in that dream. Like, if the makeup team was meticulous enough to have it look the exact same way with the exact same injuries, then... I guess so, like, because I guess the difference is, do we really think if this is a f- premonition of how Boone is going to get bloodied, or is it just like a weird freaky deaky thing? Maybe this is how Teresa the nanny looked after she broke her neck, or oh, maybe God, maybe yeah. he just wants Boone to be covered in blood for some reason. Again, if we're looking at Boone as a an inner conscience a representation of like Jiminy Cricket, hey, don't do that. Maybe uh, him blooding it is his representation of like I need to sally forth and you know put my doubt aside. Yeah. 
I am Boone, yes siree. Uh, <laughs> all right, other number six, Trippy Dreams. Daniel Brennan comes back and says, what do you guys make of the Trippy Dream sequence used in Deus Ex Machina and the technique generally? Daniel, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the Trippy Dreams. I like it, but I would say, and as much as as Lost fans in general, we love to pick apart each and every detail, I would say this is one of those things like don't look too much into. Yeah. Like, sometimes, I've, a lot with these dreams, they like to do weird things for the sake of being weird. Uh, we're going to get soon enough into the Jin speaking English to Hurley with a have a cluckety cluck cluck day of it all. And sometimes Lost just wants to do weird things that doesn't necessarily uh, tie into the larger mythos of things. So I would say the dreams are fun, but don't do like this a brooder film and pick apart every single frame of it or you're going to lose interest real quick. All right, here comes Sarah Not Stripes to meditate a little bit on the question of man of faith. Um, this is a long one from Sarah Not Stripes. Sarah Not Stripes writes, The series makes science or faith its central question, and I generally tend to think that it ultimately argues for a balance between these two extremes. But this episode really seems to focus on the consequences of absolute faith. Locke places such an immediate and extreme faith in first his father in the flashbacks and then in the island itself in the present that he loses a kidney and is largely responsible for a young man's death. Boone places the same faith in Locke and ultimately pays the ultimate price. Locke and Boone's intense desire for acceptance and purpose means they are unwilling to question what they see as the source of that purpose, both ignoring the multitude of red flags that arise along the way because they want to believe. Finding the icons filled with heroin could not be a more apt metaphor, though it's worth noting that Lost is always willing to complicate any black and white idea, and the writers have Boone make a connection with the Taileys too. The saddest thing about this episode on the rewatch is that Boone seems to be beginning to question Locke and to insist on evidence, reasoning, and even just reciprocal personal information from Locke for really the first time, but it's already too late. Putting your full faith in one thing, especially another flawed human being, is never rewarded on Lost. Hmm. That last sentence is interesting. Because I agree that I think that happens more times than not, but I wonder if there are any counterexamples of putting your faith in one person. You know, I guess the the final trajectory of Hurley and Ben, for example, where they end up. Is that an example of, of putting your faith in one person and how it, it pays off at the end of the day? Yeah, until Lost 2 comes out and really muddies uh, the trajectory of how that Hurley and Ben relationship uh, ultimately bared out, we just have to take it as, as gospel when Hurley sees Ben at the church uh, and says, you're a great number two, Ben. He says, you're a great number one, Hugo. Uh, so it seems like they got along and putting uh, faith in a, a very flawed human being was very much rewarded on Lost in the end. Um, but I think I would modify it to say that putting your full faith in one thing, especially another flawed human being, is rarely rewarded on Lost. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good modifier for it. Because I think that that sh- mostly shows. I mean, Desmond even- puts all of his faith on Penny and that pays off. You know, like there are definitely times where it, it does work. Uh, but I do think that the show ultimately argues for a balanced approach. And I think that the show does you know what it does to to Locke specifically um, to stress the danger of uh, fanaticism and uh, what it what what can happen to you if you just follow a line so blindly you'll walk off a cliff um, you have to you have to think a little bit more you have to you have to move within reason um, but it, and and it, it it leaves you so open to to being conned and deceived and and being ruined by someone who doesn't have scruples you know who who doesn't care about uh those things who who doesn't 
uh, you know, operate under under the terms that you would hope most people operate under. But you also can't close yourself off to to faith of any kind. Otherwise, you leave yourself closed off to the possibility of miracles and the possibility of of uh, of wonder and growth. And I think that that's why the Jack arc for me ultimately is very satisfying. Mm. Um, but I think that this episode is definitely a meditation on just how dangerous it can be uh, when you when you throw yourself all the way in on on Operation <laughs> Beachcraft. Uh, let's move uh, on. Operation Boondrop. It's also interesting in that, you know, Locke is going to continue down this path, but he's going to find out that, oh, no, his face is not in a flawed human being. It's in the island. But no, it is Jacob who, yes, he's gained some sort of like mythical prowess now, but once upon a time, he was a flawed human being. Uh, and I know that, you know, I think the Jacob Man in Black stuff has had some very interesting, uh, you know, reverberations in fans of the franchise. But looking back on it, that's something I really appreciate is literally humanizing these big grand forces behind the island not only makes things more relatable, but also makes things more flawed and that there really is no perfect character on Lost except for King Daddy Kwan. Uh, indeed. Uh, Lindy Steiner uh, writes in, what was going on with John's legs? What was causing him to not be able to walk well? And then suddenly he seems fine again. Uh, are we are we cool with our answer? It's the island. The island is doing this to him. Or do you still like that? It's psychosomatic. No, I, I like the island theory, but I just wish he had those Iron Man legs. Like it wouldn't have been a problem if he was able to just zoom along on those rocket boots up to the beach craft. Absolutely. All right. From Brendan Fitzpatrick. Fitz. He's going by Fitz now, he says. It's sort of a nickname I have. Uh, Fitz comes in with uh, some thoughts about Deus Ex Machina, it's the title of the episode, and also a concept. Uh, Brendan writes, Deus Ex Machina, English, uh, in English it's God from the Machine, is a plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and seemingly unlikely occurrence. Its function can be to resolve an otherwise irresolvable plot situation to surprise the audience, to bring the tale to a happy ending, or act as a comedic device. Right, I would Given- say, I'd say the biggest example of that by far, Bill Murray's appearance in Space Jam. Everybody knows it. <laughs> yes. Uh, given this, what is the deus ex machina of this episode? If it's the light in the hatch, does that make Desmond the god from the machine? If it's the island itself is actually a deus ex machina in that it's there to serve and guide the entire cast of the Losties in their own happy ending eventually. Um, yeah, I would say that the the light at the end is what saves John Locke, right? Like after all of the, like this very brutal walk through the jungle where he's meditating on one of the most brutal things that's ever happened to him in his life and he gets his close friend killed, this person who he may be viewed as a son of sorts at least, uh, get, you know, he he's at least contributes to this man's death. Um, that he goes off and he's howling in uh, in the wilderness by himself, and suddenly a light from the hatch comes on. So he does get a sign. Uh, that's absolutely the the god in the machine. And so yeah, it's totally Desmond. Desmond's god. We all know it. He's the Doctor Manhattan of Lost. Yeah, I would also argue that Locke. This entire episode is searching for the Deus Ex Machina. I think he's saying, okay, I'm going to keep going with this, and I think that uh, something is just going to happen eventually that's going to, you know, save us and reaffirm my faith in the island, and it doesn't come until that moment. So it's almost like he's seeking out the deus ex machina, this concept, the entire time. I would also mention, though, interestingly enough, Anthony Cooper was once hooked up to a dialysis machine in this episode, and he did say he was God. Yeah. So he, at one point, was literally God from the machine as well. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Good point. Uh, from Scott French, 
can't fathom why Locke's mom had to pretend to be crazy as part of Anthony's plan. Does that make any sense at all? I uh, don't think she was pretending, Scott. I don't think she. I don't think she was pretending either. Like uh, I, don't, I, I do not think they would falsify the Santa Rosa records that the PI no, gave him. No, no, no. I, I buy it as well, and I, I think that we tried to to take a stab at that too. This idea that uh. Uh, maybe it's like if you give give him the God complex, that's definitely going to work with with John Locke. Um, Ben Martell, the Ben behind the curtain, comes to us with this one. Was the choice to have Emily talk about Locke as having been immaculately conceived an early sign that they intended for Locke to have some kind of savior arc? Hmm, I'm not sure because I because considering how Anthony Cooper immediately laughs that off. And it's clear that maybe Anthony Cooper, I don't know, if again, if it was off script or Anthony Cooper suggested that to, like, get him on his side immediately. Like, oh, my goodness, what is that woman saying? Hey, you know, mom, be crazy. Am I right, son? Uh, Just to, like, bring them quickly together and have a moment to bond over. I think the immaculately conceived thing in retrospect is less interesting. What's more interesting is the whole special idea, especially connecting it back to his, uh, his sort of, like, taking interest in Walt, you know, of Locke really believing this idea of yes i may not be immaculately conceived but as you said there is something that i am destined to do or that i should be doing with the skills that i have that nobody is valuing me for and so i wonder if that part despite this all being a big con job he did sort of keep with him and move forward and i don't know how much that ties into the savior of anything i think it just ties into him maybe thinking a bit more highly uh, of his skills that may be necessary, considering all the aforementioned bad decisions he's made. Uh, Bob with two Bs asks us if Anthony Cooper is the least redeemable character on Lost. Uh, high on the list. There's a few, uh, but he's high up there. I think Kimi's on that list. Yeah, Kimi's but, but, but Kimi does make good eggs. He makes great eggs. I guess that, yeah, he's more redeemable than Cooper. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah, because like the sideways universe... Or Dosi Do universe, uh, as we've now coined it, does really interesting things to those characters. Uh, considering that, as we mentioned before, Anthony Cooper is put in a vegetative state in season six. And I wonder if part of that is to be like, haha, look at this big bad guy. And now he has to live out the rest of his days like miserable and, you know, uh, basically just a brain inside a body that can't do anything after he put his son in that state. But part of it is also like, okay, we're sort of defanging our villains. A little bit, or at least showing them in a different light, which I think is a a really interesting choice throughout many interesting choices of season six. Yeah, I, it, is it like this is what this poor bastard is going to have to deal with for the rest of his life in you know in his afterlife that he's just going to be like eternally damned to you know being confined in a wheelchair, being out of complete control of his body, um, still having you know a thinking, feeling mind, and everything like that. And this is just his eternity. Uh, now he's in hell. Uh, are you supposed to feel gratified by that? Or is that an attempt to make you feel sorry for him to some degree? Yeah, where, I don't know. Where, where it kind of helps you get to a place of like, this sad, sad bastard. Because like, let's also remember that the lock in the Dosido universe, like you said, seems to have at least some sort of relationship with him. At least, a, obviously, a better one than what they had in our universe. But it seems like... Until he wakes up, Locke and this Anthony Cooper assumingly had, like, many years together where they were, you know, fine as father and son. Yeah. But I think, you know, in in the end, like, maybe there's even, like, an attempt, like, the slightest attempt at sympathy for the devil. Um, you know, I think you, I think you got to appreciate that to some degree. Uh, but least redeemable character on Lost, 
Off the top of my head, yeah. I think that that's probably right. Yeah, definitely uh, top five, maybe top three, maybe even top one. Uh, I think once, like, once I think we- even the smoke monster is more redeemable than Anthony Cooper because like you get to see like everything he went through and he's right. like been trapped here forever. He just wants to get the hell out of here. And he didn't ask to become like a malevolent force of evil. You know, that wasn't something that he wanted. Uh, Jacob did that to him. Uh, so like you, you can, you can like buy that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's not, uh, there, there's like ways in which like you can buy his whole idea, like his whole plot to get off the island. He does terrible things to people we love. Uh, and you can't imagine that his intent for the world outside is all that good. Um, but it's still at the same point, uh, he's, he's got, he's coming from somewhere. We just never find out where Anthony Cooper's coming from. Right, and and that's what goes back to what I said at the very beginning of the podcast, and that I think that Anthony Cooper really isn't a person from that regard. I think he's very purposely not given any sort of background or uh, emotional complexity because he's supposed to represent something rather than actually be a person. Yeah. Um, all right, this is from Sarah, not Stripes. If you need any more evidence that Sawyer's character is on an upward rehabilitation trajectory, I say look no forward, look no further than Sawyer's glasses. It's a great representation of his closer integration into island society. Sun tries to help him with natural medicine. Kate forces him to submit to a checkup. Jack diagnoses the problem, and Saeed builds him a pair of prescription glasses. He may be cantankerous and abrasive, but he's a far cry from the man three of these four people assumed had stolen a young woman's asthma medication. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you spoke about this in the beginning as well. And I think, again, in that Jack Sawyer scene, the fact that he is able to be a bit more vulnerable, even in front of the person that probably likes him the least in this group, I think is something. Also, you think Sawyer could pull off like the Clark Kent Superman thing now that he has glasses? Yes, do you think? Yes. He, I know he said he's integrating into the group, but do you think he could like fit in with the rest of the Gawkers by just putting yes. on his glasses? Yes, 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 I do. I think that he can blend in. I think no one will know that he's Sawyer. Soya man. Yeah, he just um, has to tie his hair back and put on his glasses. Uh, Brendan Fitzpatrick asks us, how did Desmond not hear and react to the first five minutes of this episode as the trebuchet was crashing down on the roof? Let me try this for you. The, the button was going. It was button time, and that thing's loud down there. Yeah, or, so he, or like he, was, the, he was playing the record player, too, maybe. Yeah, maybe a combo platter, right, of, like, uh, loud Mama Cass, and the, the clock is just booming, and so... Uh, Desmond's there and that's pretty far away from the hatch door so he just misses it or maybe he's listening to like an explosive uh, song in the background too so it just like all blends in I also wonder if this some death no, metal maybe gonna have to ask the crash people about sound quality but if the sound of hitting a pane of glass uh, that doesn't you know break does that make as loud of a sound as m- clanging on metal because, you know, I think that pounding on metal doors probably is going to make an overall louder, more echoey noise than just one plunk off the glass. Also, John Locke was super sad. Yeah, he's got sad energy. You can just hear that that BSE. Uh, This is from John Krause. If you put the numbers into a GPS as coordinates, you get somewhere just off the coast of Africa in the Atlantic Ocean, not terribly far from Nigeria. So them finding the Nigerian plane in this episode once again led to a lot of fan speculation. Maybe the island was in the Atlantic. I mean, you do have to wonder, like, how that worked out logistically. We know that the island can move. So is the island like 
in the Atlantic at that time? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how far uh, Gordy got that drug plane before and then and then ended up uh, crashing. Guess, guess what, Mike? I'm not going to think about it too hard. No, we'll get, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that once we get uh, to uh, Locke flashing back in time and actually seeing the plane crash before uh, Ethan shoots him. Uh, one last one from April Thomas. Uh, I just started this episode, and I now have a working theory that John Locke is the Daenerys Targaryen of Lost. I'll probably never be able to properly articulate it, but I wanted to put it out there. <laughs> okay, great. And then she says, and now my brain is reaching the logical next step that Ben Linus is the Jon Snow. Uh, I don't want to spoil Game of Thrones for anybody on this podcast who may go to Game of Thrones someday uh, and has not done so yet, other than to say... I can kind of see it with John Locke as the Daenerys of Lost, but you've lost me on Ben Linus as the Jon Snow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that in that case, like maybe Ben to Jacob is sort of like Jon Snow to Daenerys. But I would say that Locke is like Daenerys from like seasons one through six uh-huh. of like, I'm I know, you know, I'm talented. I'm going to blaze up a trail of fire because I know what I'm going to set out to do. And then you realize okay, maybe maybe this path is not great for me. Maybe I'm not meant for this. Uh, and I, I feel like maybe the way that her arc ends is vastly, vastly different. Unless you say that the Daenerys of season eight is the man in black, in which case that sort of does line up. All right, let's get into the 23 points. Mike's going to give out two MVPs. I got three. Uh, then I'm going to give out two LVPs. Mike is going to give out three LVP points. Uh, gotta imagine John Locke is uh, gonna make it on the board here, but perhaps surprisingly, I didn't give him any points this week because I thought that there were other points that were worthy of being divvied out. Uh, I'll start with Boone. What a hero! Mm. Boone Carlisle is about to hop off the board. I I have a feeling he's not gonna be able to get out of the red. I think that this is unfortunately well, a character. Yeah, there's a lot of red all over him already. He's gonna be in the negatives forever, is my guess. So uh that's unfortunate. Um but let's at least edge him up a, a little bit, although he's gonna sink back down next week because he dies. I'm gonna have to I don't give know. Him an yeah, MVP I, I may point. I may have to try to like strategically balance it out by giving I, him an MVP point next I, week. I, let me just like since we're a week away from it, uh in terms of the release at least, uh I think that Boone deserves an MVP point next week. All right. He's, he's such a champ through everything. I have to give him an LVP point next week because he dies. And that is my protocol. Uh, but we should try and balance that out if we can. Yeah, At the very so least, for now, we're going to take him from negative four to negative three because I'm going to give him my first MVP point. Yeah, and I, I won't spoil too much about our next uh, stuff. But from looking at the MVP, LVPs, I mean, it's very tight to fit in only five MVPs from that episode because God, God damn, there's so it's much hard. good stuff from those. Everyone's characters. everyone's on the top of their game and in, in, uh, do no harm. Uh, but I'm going to talk about a man who enjoys games as well. I'm going to give Locke a point here. If anything, for Terry O'Quinn's incredible performance. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's totally, totally worth it. Like the reason why this week, like I just can't give him more than I, I, I figured like he would get the one from you. Uh, and there's a couple of other people who I who I want to salute because they're so great in this episode. Well, there's one person who's in the episode that is really great, and then one person who is a is a very valuable player. Um, but Locke Locke gets conned. He get he gets conned real bad. Uh, and yeah, he, and I think that uh, actually Anthony Cooper does become his con in a way, you know. And he follows that faith too far down the line, so it's just it's no good. It's no good for Johnny Locke. But I think that he definitely deserves at least to be on the MVP side this week because Terry O'Quinn is outstanding. Is outstanding. This is yeah, uh, and I and I think that 
these this might be like the best one two punch of flashbacks for any lost character yeah. in my opinion uh you know i think the white rabbit all the best daddies might be a close follow-up but damn these are just two great lock flashback episodes yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um all right i'm gonna give a point to hurley because he kills Sawyer with steamrolled <laughs> Harry Potter. Like, I, I have to. Like, that's the purpose of the MVP section is, like, when somebody shows up and does something that is, like, so meteoric you have, or meteoritic, uh, you, have to, you have to honor that. And Hurley just, with, with a single, single one-liner, destroys Sawyer. And it's incredible and so deserved. And I could not be happier to give somebody an MVP point. Well, let's stick with uh, some maybe cameo castaways in this episode. Oh, are they uh, they're on book cameo, these guys? Yes, and Saeed is asking for only a little bit of money. I think he's uh-huh. very, uh, you know... Reasonable I, I, rate. Yeah, I think he's very sincere and uh, just very simple with his payments and the messages that he'll send. Though he'll learn to send some very different messages when he comes back from the island. Uh, I'm going to give him a point uh, because of his craftsmanship and the fact that he is allowed Sawyer to be able to see as much as Jack's diagnosis, you know, gave a name to what he was going through. I think were it not for Saeed and his soldering ability, we would not be able to treat Sawyer's hyperopia. The soldering soldier. I love it. That's that montage cracks me up. So I, I'm, I'm totally here for that. Uh, I'm going to give the last MVP point. And I know he's not in the episode. And sometimes we do that. Uh, but he's in the episode, even if he's not physically seen. How can how can you not give an MVP point to the Deus Ex Machina himself? And finally, a, a, a character who we have really barely talked about on yeah. Down the Hatch, uh, and very soon we're going to be talking about a good amount more. Got to bring in Desmond Hume. Yeah, we're going to be talking for for uh, in a little bit more, but then only for a little portion of time, yes, and then at the yes. very end of the season. Yes, but here's here comes Desmond to save John Locke's life, and John Locke is saving Desmond's life as well in this moment. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful cycle. Uh, so gonna give Desmond his first of I hope many many points. We're gonna get him on the board here in Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, I, I can't see into time much like Desmond can, but I have a feeling he's gonna be racking him up once he really becomes a mainstay in season three. Take us to the LVPs, Mike Bloom. Who do you got? Well, let's mention a character who did not show up in an episode where he received LVP points, but I think still deserve them. Uh, I'm gonna give one point to A Coops. Uh, yeah. He's a dis- he's, you know what? Uh, he's uh, there's a fun performance out of it, but he is just a despicable person. I, he deserves an LVP point. Absolutely, he gets both of mine. He gets both of my LVP points. So Anthony Cooper gets three, which instantly I believe uh, puts him at negative four. So he is uh, he is anchoring the LVP section right oh, now. Oh, and he passed uh, other bad daddy Christian Shepherd. He's there with Shannon and ironically enough Sawyer. Uh, so Sawyer, keep your hands to yourself for now. Uh, but uh, yeah, Anthony Cooper bringing up the rear here. Uh, yeah, great performance, great character, despicable human being. In an episode like this, I think that you just have to bag on Anthony Cooper. And I'm going to also bag on his accomplice here, Emily Locke. Look, she may have had her motivations. Uh, this stuff about uh, her mental illness and addiction is true. It's clear that she was uh, manipulated and was driven by the idea of getting money from Anthony Cooper. But it still does not make up for the fact that she is the one that really brings John into this world that will permanently affect the rest of his life. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for her. I think that she's obviously been through some very, very hard things. Um, 
she plays ball with one of like the meanest things that happens on Lost. So. Yeah, and she yeah. grabs both the regulation one and the nerf one. That's how <laughs> hardcore she is. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I am going to give a point. Look, he does eventually diagnose Sawyer, but Jack's bedside manner wow. needs a little <laughs> bit of work. And look, it's going to be a big Jack episode next time. So I figured let's bring him down a little bit before we bring him back up. Oh, my God. There's there's a lot of uh, people who are not thrilled with the way that Jack gets treated here and down the hatch. This is not going to be a week they're happy about. He's a uh, dick. <laughs> uh, all right. So just to give some some headlines here uh, on the the the, tw- the, the 23 uh, points. Um, Kate is still in the lead at nine, but Locke is coming uh, to, to close the gap. He's got seven. Uh, and uh, well, then maybe, maybe, it- maybe not in the next couple of episodes. We'll see. We'll we picked see. A, picked a bad time for him to just drop off Boone and lie about what happened to him yeah i think that he may be in trouble here for a little while hurley and saeed are tied for third both of them have six points uh sun is alone in fourth place with five points claire is alone uh in uh in oh don't tell her that she's alone she has to have the baby uh and then jack has dropped uh to the the sixth place tier with Jin and charlie three points a piece and Anthony Cooper. Yeah, he's bringing it up with Shannon and Sawyer. Negative four. Boone goes to negative three. Uh, if if he doesn't get an MVP point next week, then yeah, he's he's gonna he's gonna close out in the negative four. So well, I don't know. We'll, I mean, we'll he's gonna it. you know appear in, in one of Locke's fever dreams. Uh, he's gonna you know have some appearances in the sideways universe. So it might not be the end for Boone, but definitely a hard stop for now. So it should come as no surprise as we move on to the 4.2 stars. I've already revealed my score is definitely a 4.2. I think it would be a 4.0 if not for the fact that this has, uh, I was going to say a lights out ending, but it's a light on ending. Um, And Mike, uh, to spoil your score, you're also a 4.2. Yeah, I think that this would probably be in the category of like a solitary for me, which I gave a 4.1. Were it not for the ending in terms of like really great character illustrations, on top of some really important island mythos stuff, and then, like, a pretty fun B-plot as well. But we really, I think, fleshed out each and every part of this, how even the B-plot has some really interesting character beats for everyone who's involved, or at least from our our main three, and that ending is just everything that's perfect about Lost. It's marvelous, darling. Yeah, encapsulated in, in, you know, a few minutes, so... Yeah, I you know, I have been stingier with the 4.2s than you have, but I think if you're comparing it to the pilot and especially to Walkabout, it's it's right up there for me. So 4.2. It's right up there. Absolutely. Uh more episodes of Lost are in this, you know, in the range of this than not for me. I hope at least in the in the final balance of things that are like high 3s at least. Um and that's where the audience has it. The audience has it as a 3.9 as it stands, which nets Deus Ex Machina out at 4.12 currently, which is just behind 4.15 for the pilot, which is just behind 4.16 for Walkabout. So wow. Deus Ex Machina is the current third best episode of Lost. It has just surpassed all the best daddies in White Rabbit, which are tied in fourth, followed by Solitary. <laughs> Locke says, Take place. that, Jack. Take that, Jack. Um, all right. Well, uh, we hope you all have a happy holiday for those who are celebrating. But next week on Down the Hatch, we'll be celebrating uh, the final episode of Down the Hatch of 2019. Holy uh, moly. Do no harm. Dropping in your feeds December 27th. Uh, and we will have uh, a baby new year to talk about, Mike. Yeah, and uh, uh, I guess uh, the old man. Was Boone, was Boone the ball that dropped? 
Oh boy. Well, he yeah, I guess he he dropped. Uh, it was not a countdown though, and I, I think that many people were unhappy about that ball dropping. But yeah, I mean, we have a gripping episode of Lost, in my opinion. At this point, looking at the four point twos, uh, I think it's safe to say that not as many people enjoy this episode. Actually, no, it seems like there's a fair amount like really love this episode. I saw one piece of feedback that was like, people might not like, people don't usually like this episode. I love this episode. I am a huge fan of Do No Harm. I, I think I, it's 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 a huge, even though it's a Jack-focused episode, it's a big ensemble episode. It feels like for the first time in a while where nearly everybody has something to do because, you know, the Ethan stuff was scary, but this is the m- biggest thing that has happened on the island since the very beginning it's it's an absolutely elite episode of lost in my opinion so we'll talk about that we'll be back december 27th with that podcast subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already post show recaps.com slash down the hatch is the way to get our apple feed but we are on your podcast app of choice send in your feedback for that final feedback show for season one which will come at the end of january down the hatch at post show I'm on the Twitter bots at round Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. Talk to us about Lost. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, Mike, anything else? I can't believe we're nearing the 20s when it comes to these Lost episodes. You know, we're going to blink and it's going to be the end of season one. And granted, we have much, much more Lost to get into. But it feels like we've been literally down the hatch for, you know, the past like five months or so. And now a light has been shown onto us saying, okay, well, we're going to go to some new funky places coming up in the future. All right. Well, I love those funky places and I love doing this podcast with you, Mike, and we love doing it for you guys out there who are listening. Uh, We love our hatchlings and we will be back to talk. Do no harm in the final down the hatch podcast of 2019 coming your way December 27th. Until then, everybody take care. Goodbye. Eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty, forty-two, four, 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 eight,